today we have Gabe, Slick Dissident on YouTube, coming to wrap up these last four podcasts that were that st started with Thomas Sherman with a new calendar and then moved into Professor Longo's teaching us of the Christian, the Eastern Christian mysticism of the Eastern Roman Empire. And then we get into the sonic world of vibration and frequency oscillation with Eileen McCusick. And now with Gabe, we're here to holotropically tie it all up. <laughs> Uh, this podcast is a, the overall, the BioCharisma podcast is a podcast about cosmology. It's the last stage of, I, and it's, when I say it's the last, doesn't mean you finish. <laughs> it's the gateway to like really living, I guess, is the best way of saying it. But when you look at what the Greeks used to call the trivium and the quadrivium, it's where the three roads converge and the four roads converge. Uh, and then you measure that against your five senses. That's where you get the three, four, five triangle. That's where you get to be right. And this is the the this is what philosophy lived births. That's why I wanted to do this podcast is to talk to minds like Gabriel and really suss this out get vantage points that aren't so common, but are very pertinent to our life. And so the three, four, five, the trivium and the quadrivium, just to be clear, grammar, logic, and rhetoric, that's the trivium. And then number, number in space, which is music, number in space and time, excuse me, number in space is geometry, number in space and time is music. And number and space and time over duration is cosmology. That's the quadrivium. Having those all together, the marriage of those gives a very holistic way of communing with your surroundings. So listen to the four of these podcasts together because out of all the work and all the wonderful guests that I have, I think this is starting to build the most cohesive picture of what our, what we're actually in <laughs> and what we're actually doing. Um, and it's wonderful. For me personally, it's super exciting and invigorating. And I feel a huge thrust of energy from actually being able to contemplate these types of things. And I really thank you all for your support and uh, like, it's all been such a beautiful reciprocation. So I really look forward to hearing what you guys have to say about this podcast. And uh, I will see you on the back side of our interview. Welcome, BioCharismites. We're back with the slick dissident himself, my my angel Gabriel. 
the gentleman that I syncopate with all, all the time whenever I have some some wild outlandish musing that I need to to find an equally vibrant mind to like, you know, push against or 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 contribute to the the conversation. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing wonderful, Topher. So happy to be here. I'm so excited. It's like uh, we're all getting the same reset, and we're all feeling it. We're going to syncopate and and blaze new trails in a whole new dimension. Yes, I, I totally, I'm totally feeling it. Um, I was subjected to uh, this Tom Sherman's new calendar about three months ago. And the second I heard his rationale of linking a calendar to average sunlight, that like completely made sense to me. Because no matter where I've been in the world, the, the man given time doesn't really matter. What actually matters is the nature, like what nature is showing us. And you know my dive into celestics and real sky astronomy with linking that to real sky astrology. And this was just like a deeper level of it. Ever since I've read Jose Arguelles' books back in the early 2000s around the Mayan calendar, and the main thing I got from him was essentially that he was saying that the Gregorian calendar kind of throws us off rhythm <laughs> it, it takes us out of the rhythm of the natural world and that resonated with me very deeply it's sort of like the the gregorian calendar i can liken it to acid jazz <laughs> it's just like <laughs> there's no real rhythm and you and i we love the brothers man we love like when you can have like a beat that just that that bass rhythm that just gets you into it Shout out Emily Moyer. I know she'll be enjoying this. The, the whole thing is, is what is the best way that we can actually fall into a synchronous rhythm with our environment that then amplifies our own expression, amplifies what the creator wants for us. Because when, I don't know about you, Gabe, but like, I know you're in capoeira. I know you can move your body with great proficiency. When you're out of rhythm, like with a dance partner, it does not feel right. It feels horrible. <laughs> and, and I'm feeling like this type of calendar system or anything that links us back to what nature is expressing actually gets us in this beautiful coordinated dance where then you can build because we all know in harmonics like if you get a, if you have a harmony with somebody else you have additive energy and when you have disharmony you have a reduction in energy and so i'm looking in my life to add energy to like let this thing build so you've introduced to me the enneagram <laughs> and so I'm looking at this new calendar and I'm just going to show people what this new calendar looks. I'm sorry. I'm like hogging all of the, uh, all of the intro here, but I just have to, I have to frame this correctly for people. Can you see the new, the new calendar month? Not yet. I, I see that it wants to show something, but it's a black screen. Is that coming up? 
not for me. It did. It did. Uh, it put you in a, a, a other screen, and it was showing me a blankness. Okay. Let me see if I can. Does that come up? No. Oh, there it is. There it is. Now we're good. Yeah. Okay. So what made this new calendar jump out at me was your work on the Enneagram. I am still a virgin novice to the Enneagram. I will not pretend to know um, what it is expressing just yet. But when I saw this one, two, three, four, five through nine as the new week. So for those of you that don't know the new calendar, it's essentially if you can see over here that there's five seasons and it's linked to sun, the amount of sunlight. And what's beautiful about this is the symmetry that you have between fall and winter and spring and autumn is the same amount of sun. And then the apex or the zenith is summer. And so that there's 10 months that are 36 days long. And between those 36 day periods, you have a day out of time, but they oddly line up with very major things that happen for us. And you're the best at like, you know, <laughs> at finding the, the hidden meaning of dates and things. But what, <laughs> but what I saw was, is this like, okay, we have a day, okay, one, the whole thing is set to daylight hours. And then the second thing that I saw is this nine-day week gives you the 369 principle. And it gives us nine, it gives us the planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Pluto. So my mind went, Gabriel, th throw your mind at this, and how does this relate to the Enneagram? So that that's where we're at with this. This is kind of why I had to have a mind meld with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And one thing I, I picked up on right away is it is the progression of the uh, the solar system as it's described to us going from Mercury. And then also I noted number three is Earth, which the number three is an anagram for Earth. Right. So, yeah, <laughs> Earth is number three. Uh -huh. And then uh, moving out to Pluto which is perfectly correspondent with the Enneagram. It's one of the strongest anchors is that ninth, that ninth personality type is, is actually in great, has a great amount of control because they're slothful, because they're slow. Uh, um, and because Pluto, as it's described, is the furthest away, has the longest orbital period. So sloth, is perfectly embodied mm -hmm. by whatever that last the last piggy to the market is going to be is the slothful and that's true in mythology it's just a a personality tied to any dynamic uh any uh uh group of people has that one person who lags behind but uh we can honor that the person lagging behind can be their own form of a strength if everybody expects them to uh to play into that role, you mm -hmm. know, uh, if uh, uh, that's a yeah. So that's one thing I noticed. But in the uh, in the enneagram work, there is not an Earth uh, planetary uh, assignment. Okay. Um, but I all but that is uh, possibly exchangeable for the moon because there was no moon. 
there's no moon in that uh, his nine day calendar. So mm -hmm. you could you could plug the moon in for Earth. Well, theoretically, well, let's do this. Let's yeah. get rid of his correspondences of the planets. And right. let's let's just get into the numbers of the Enneagram. If you want, I have an uh, just a generic Enneagram chart that I could put up. Or mm -hmm. we could show like should I do the should I do the generic one before we go into your like super detailed symbolic one just so people can get like the more sanitized enneagramic totally. view? Okay, let me totally. do that. And while while you're pulling that up, I was gonna send you a couple of graphics. I'm gonna try to send them to you now, and hopefully not get zapped out. Uh, yeah, you go ahead, and I'm gonna try to stealth something to you on the telegram okay sounds good so let me share this is that coming through nice and beautiful, beautiful. for you yep so gabe tell us what the enneagram is remember we're starting with the most general and then we're going to work our way towards the advanced because your your level of depth with this is is like astounding so let's start with the easiest and work our way into it absolutely so like you said i am uh, perpetually of a student's mind with this enneagram as um, a great amount of the world is uh, uh, has, everybody comes to it in their own path for their own purposes and with their own uses. And it, like an accordion, it can expand into macro and micro in great and amazing ways, which is kind of part of what's beautiful. It makes it really hard to pinpoint what what it is. Um, because it does work as a personality uh, personality dynamic uh, uh, matrix or dance, you could say. Mm -hmm. um, but it, uh, what I think the maybe the best way to explain it is, it gives us a uh, a psychological map of the interplay of people's vices, their virtues their strengths and their weaknesses, um, and also their uh, tendencies. We all have a, we have a, a, a natural cultural uh, inclina inclination to think of a person who has a perfectionist personality type. We have a, a feedback when we resonate to them. And that feedback actually can be perceived visually. And that I think is what the Enneagram does. So I don't need to pull out the map when I'm talking to a friend describing my uh, a, a situation. I can say, yeah, they were like a really strong one, you know, mm -hmm. and I was falling into my number four uh, uh, habits or mentality. I wanted to be perceived uh, as an individual and seen for my uniqueness. Uh, and, so, and so the language that it gives us uh, is kind of beautiful because it maps out our thoughts and gives us order uh, that we can all have a meeting of the minds. And I'll, uh, one thing I found is that the word order has a great amount of definitions, one of which is uh, the nine heavenly realms. Ah, okay. 
I just lost it. Are you still there? Gabriel, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear uh, me? Now I can. Yeah, you're you're back. Oh, okay. That was weird. Safe driving mode kicked in. And just so you know, I cannot see your. I cannot see you. Um. Here we you're, go. Here you're we not. Go. There we go. <laughs> Ooh, that's Whoa. What's going on? It's Zoom. Wow. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah, it, it it's it's definitely uh it's somebody's driving me. Who's yeah, driving this thing? <laughs> it it's definitely following you. <laughs> That's always fun. Is that a mode? Did I hit a mode or something? I, I think he did. Wow. That is kind of creepy. How does that happen? So I'm gonna pull up these photos that you just sent me. Because I really like this. I think this is beautiful have you so, ever with the way the enneagram goes because i've been a student of marco rodin for 20 years in vortex mathematics i know a bunch of nerds that have actually wound his coils and have had like the over unity effect of doing the one one plus one equals two two plus two equals four four plus four equals eight Eight plus eight equals sixteen, which is seven. And it's the whole thing that this enneagram. Um, I'll show. I'll sh actually show what I'm talking about here. You can actually see this right now. Yes. <laughs> so I love how you, I love how you're you're doing. What what's it called? Is it the bird language when you're switching everything around the calendar? The candelier. Um, and it's, like, yes, yes. It's also uh, uh, twilight speak is a good way to describe it uh, because it's, uh, I think of it as, you know, uh, to lie is to miss the mark. Right. To sin. And, yeah. And so many people believe that our words uh, have a compulsive accuracy to them. Mm-mm. That's right. I like to speak. I like to speak with a shotgun, sawed off, scatter <laughs> shot. <laughs> so, dude, this is the so a lot of people don't understand the third phase of the trivium. The trivium is grammar, then logic, then rhetoric. The height of rhetoric is that sawed off shotgun that you're talking about. It is the capacity because it's a way of speaking code without changing your speaking. So only yeah. the initiated that actually has taken the time, has had the discipline to study, has had the courage to explore, can actually understand what another being of that, of that level of depth is saying without any extra superfluous junk. You could literally be in a, in a room of a hundred people and you just are talking and the ones that know, know, and the ones that don't know, won't know. <laughs> it's, it's, exactly. and, and this is, I think the, the end of rhetoric. I think this is like, when I say the end of rhetoric, what I mean is it's like when you've gotten to the point 
of 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 the study of it is like you are there and you're with like you can take the shotgun blast of information and then decipher that for for your own for for whatever the process is that you're going through perfectly yes. the mon when you're only at the mundane level and you're in you're a literalist like dude i'm finding this so much with the different literalists in my life when you're just a literalist right your exposure your exposure to life is so minimal like it it's like extremely minimal so i'm sorry i got off on that rant but when when you said that <laughs> i just had to bring up to people it's just like hey this is we each one of us is an alchemical vessel and in that alchemical vessel to to get the the philosopher's stone you have to go through the crucible in that crucible of life is constantly transforming. And so if you have a literalist interpretation of everything, how does the transformation ever happen? That's <laughs> so true. It's so true. And, you know, I love that you said uh, this is the end of rhetoric um, be, uh, because I'm uh, the number one personality type in Plato's Symposium is a is a professional rhetorician, mm -hmm. and uh, that's Phaedrus. And I've been studying him quite actively. I find uh, because the number one is the reformer, mm -hmm. and we're going. And so it might be uh, even better to say we're reforming rhetoric, rhetorica uh, from here on out. And the reason why this reset is so valuable to uh, to us in what we do is we have left the letter of the literalist, the written word, is completely uh, perceived as a cage, uh, mm -hmm. a limiting mindset, that literalist. And that's the number two personality type we can get to in a minute. But what's glorious in this day and age is because of Zoom, in conversation, in the living word, in the fact that I can talk to you with my hands as well as my tonality, mm -hmm. uh, re rhetoric or spoken word, the living word, has been elevated to new heights and values. And so in a glorious way, we are uh, in a, uh, playing into the number one by reforming the value of words, because now we can actually speak them uh, and put passion and life into them, have full ownership and responsibility for them, uh, because the Greeks actually thought the written word in the symposium, they say, they talk about um, uh, children are like orphans or uh, foster, uh, that there's a great amount of foster children. There were, in Athens, there were a great amount of foster children. There was also a, a mine, a silver mine. So, there's some dark stuff behind this in in the shadows of the symposium. Super dark stuff. Mm -hmm. But we're going to keep it light. That conversation about uh, uh, taking on foster kids or a schoolmaster or a, a, a educator or even a craftsman is taking on apprentices. And by taking on these apprentices, there's an appropriate relationship to these children. Well, what's fascinating about that conversation is that that personality type, his muse is Cleo. She is the muse of the written word, and he's a lawyer. Uh, that's uh, Pausanias. 
And so the first speaker is the spoken word, whose muse is uh, polyhymnia, uh, she of many praises. She's, uh, she, she is the living word. She mm -hmm. probably knows many languages. She can speak in the, like a predominantly uh, anglicized dialect, or she can switch it up and go into a Latinized dialect, but still be speaking the same language, but have a Latin uh, flair to her word choice. Mm -hmm. But the next speaker is completely limiting and actually uh, is getting into, um, okay, I missed a point. I missed a valuable point. Speaker number two with the written word, the Greeks believed that uh, written word is like a orphaned child because its parent, its creator is not there to answer for any misinterpretations of the written word. So okay. the literal the literalists who go by the letter, they are so linear and self-limiting because uh, like an orphan, they don't have freedom of movement, freedom of thought, freedom of interpretation. And even they don't have a, a real one-on-one -on -one relationship to the writer of the words that they're obedient to. Right. So it, it, it's such a narrow reality tunnel. Now, now keep in mind, I'm not dogging number twos in general. I'm not dogging. I'm just talking about our our mindset, this shift in the mindset. So like uh, a lot of times that's important to be like, uh, don't take these things personal. We're just talking about different mentalities, you know. Uh, that's one thing I did with the Enneagram is I didn't use it as like, this is about me. Mm -hmm. I went right into using it as this is social engineering. And these are actually mental uh, capacities of the, of a of a number one in a society, the number mm -hmm. two in society. And by running it through the symposium, I found the nine muses in the perfect order. And those nine muses make up a library of Alexandria that wasn't a library. It was actually a museum. And so when I put the nine muses that were the actual source of these uh, that inspired the written word of the symposium, when I put those muses in the nine stations, uh, I was looking at the back channels of social engineering going back to the Greeks. When you prioritize the muses in different ways, you get a different yield from the people who uh, venerate the system. And, and work into the system. And so finding the muses hidden in Plato's symposium is, uh, that's enough to build a career on. I could just go on the rest of my life writing about the, uh, finding the hidden muses in Plato's symposium. And, and I wonder, I boggle, am I the first person to find this? Has you anybody might, else? I've n I have yet to hear that. And could you just, just give people a little, like give yeah. them, a a very simple watered down definition of the muse because a lot of people yeah. they 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 just associate muse at, for inspiration is right. there is there any like kind of expound a little bit on that i just want to make sure we're all sharing the same grammar in this great yes yes so um the different muses, uh, there are generally nine of them, and um, they would be uh, maybe like the, I think of them as your, okay, so if I'm a, if I'm a, a musician, it has the word muse in it, mm -hmm. then I'm not going to waste my time uh, studying 
Um, uh, what's a good example? I would oh I wouldn't I would focus on the instrument and I would uh, not bother with uh, studying tragedy or studying uh, acting or some other some other art form. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the muse is like a, a a high concentration of a specific form of art. And so I'll just rip through them real quick. Uh, you know, and here I'll, I'll put the. Uh, now, today, the muses are not the same exactly as what the symposium was, but the change from what it was to what it is now is important uh, to see the shifting. But the first, the first speaker was a rhetorician, and the muse of rhetoric, her name is Polyhymnia. Mm -hmm. And so you go and you study Polyhymnia, and you study the first speaker, and you realize she is the source that he draws upon that it's what inspires him. It's it's what he wakes up in the morning to go do is to impress Polyhymnia. And before he makes a uh, before he speaks, he'll actually say, say a prayer to her. And there are little uh, beautiful words that are praise to Polyhymnia. And he could just say those words. He doesn't even have to say her name. So mm -hmm. there's actually words still in English. If you use the word many praises. You're actually saying Polyhemia's name. It's just uh, her ep epithet is the translation of her name. So uh, the rhetorician is Polyhemia, number one. Uh, number two was a lawyer. He's the lawbringer. And uh, his muse, the muse of the written word, is Cleo. And Cleo is the muse of history uh, and the, the muse of what is written uh, and, and libraries as well. And she has a specific book on her lap is the history of the Peloponnesian War, uh, Theocidides' history of the Peloponnesian War, uh, sometimes a scroll, sometimes a book. Now, their uh, their artifacts are also part of their symbology, like uh, Polyhymnia is leaning on a stone. Well, the stone she's leaning on, I go and I study what is the stone. It's a, a it's a lectern. Mm -hmm. It's a it, it's an altar, it's a table, it's the place that the speaker is going to go up and stand and take his turn. And putting your elbow on the lectern is a symbol of polyhymnia. And I learned that in a, in statecraft, the phrase, they this person has sharp elbows, that's a code for rhetoricians. And nice. it means that, that they're a sharp speaker. They look like they're not going to do anything, but that means they only need two or three words to blow your argument out of the water. Mm -hmm. And that's because they got these sharp elbows. But also it means that they can move a crowd. Mm -hmm. You can move a crowd if you have sharp elbows. So like these small puns unpack into like amazing amounts of meaning. Okay. So the third muse is uh, Euterpe uh, because... There's a switch in the seating order. I won't get into that too much, but the three and the four switch, which is a musical true truism. Um, it's also like a 3.14 encode. It's many, many things with the, the switch here. But the next speaker, because of a, a silly uh, hiccups, a case of hiccups, the physician steps in to cure the hiccups. So the next muse is Euterpe, the muse of music, and she's a flautist. She uh, plays the flute. And so the physician speaks about finding harmony in the body. And when I listened to his speech, I realized that harmony is the essence of his muse, Euterpe. 
Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so of course, Euterpe is now in uh, behind him. I think of the muse as like contraposta, the angel on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. And she's telling him, like, don't forget to talk about harmony. Tell these fools about harmony. He's like, oh, yeah, thanks. So, yeah, harmony is important, you know. So this is kind of what you, you the source you draw upon, that still small voice. And everybody's has a different flavor depending on all things, depending on so many things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that informs you into your propensities in the uh, in the Enneagram. And now it is important that the Enneagram, like I'm saying Enneagram and Symposium, but they're not exactly the same. But the Enneagram gives me a lens into the Symposium and the dynamics of it. And so many layers of truth have come out that I think historians might have, uh, they didn't have it. They, they just didn't have this cheat sheet that I'm using. Mm-hmm. So then comes then comes the comedian is the next one to speak number four, and uh, four is a highly cabalistic number. It's the first number to reduce to the one, and he cures his hiccups and gives a speech on comedy. Um, and the muse of comedy is Thalia, and Thalia is with a uh, laughing com- a comedy mask and a shepherd's crook and ribbons. She's often dancing and she has ribbons coming off of her. Uh, let's see, she is called joyous or flourishing, and she focuses on the natural world, which is beautiful because he had the hiccups. So it's like his animal nature, like, uh, kind of pulled him away for a minute. Uh, so the natural world, he was expressing his natural, uh, I don't know, uh, repulsion to hypocrisy because the second speaker was a high grade hypocrite. So mm-hmm. he gets the hiccups and he has to wait wait a turn. It's really beautiful. Uh, and also the word mocking, just that word. We know Operation Mockingbird. Every time we said that, we were drawing on this muse of Thaliga. And mm-hmm. that title, that title literally is synonymous to her name. So they're still alive and well in our vernacular. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and it gives depth perception when you hear these epithets that uh, apply to them. And then the next speaker was the tragedian, uh, Agathon. It was his house. It was his big success that night. That's why they were partying, because he had made his uh, made his debut with the, this major tragedy. She is sometimes known as melodious. She has a dagger, sometimes hidden. Often her, her dagger is hidden. She's got a high dagger. A Heidegger, birth of tragedy. <laughs> yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> These guys are working. They are working on a very high level of a uh, high order of thought. And mm-hmm. I'm really, uh, I feel I'm humbled. Uh, but I also, yeah, I feel like now I have a, 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 a insight into one of the sickest jokes in history. So, <clears throat> uh, so yeah, things like that pop up and you're like, oh, those fuckers. Uh, she is uh, sumptuously dressed. She has too many clothes on. Like she uh, is taking comfort uh, in uh, garments, but also I think like uh, if if melpomene is your muse, you might eat a lot. So a lot of people who are are comfort eaters, they're kind of playing into this tragic aspect of their life. Uh, but even like wearing lots of clothes is a comfort for a lot of people. Um, but that's one of her symbols, you'll notice. And also, uh, tragedians, they have a dress code. They have high boots. They wear their 
their skirt is actually a high draped skirt, so you can actually see uh, tragedy foreshadowed in dress code. It's it's wild. So uh, the next one is an empty seat at the symposium. Number six is an empty seat, and that empty seat is very dynamic, much like the hiccups in the beginning. The empty seat becomes musical chairs at the end again, and that uh, the muse. Uh, I had to do this through apophatic reasoning. I placed all the muses except for the missing ones, and then I had to think out what are the two missing muses, and of course, which one logically fits in which spot. Well, the sixth muse is the muse of sex, and it mm. is that simple. It is that simple. Um, uh, it, uh, her name is Irato, E-R-A-T-O, and Irato is the muse of love making like beautiful uh, intimacy mm -hmm. not not to be confused for lust now there are lust components but this is like you know even foreplay or even uh, innuendo even making erotic poetry all of these are her power her powerhouse she's sim symbolized by turtles turtle doves um mm. and she has quite a few oh uh, a lightning bolt Funny enough, a lightning bolt is one of her symbols. Um, and a laurel wreath. Uh, oh, and a zither harp. Uh, either a zither harp or a turtle harp. Uh, two different harps, which is kind of beautiful. You remember, uh, you know, guitarists, they still use turtle shell uh, Picks. pick. Yeah. Yeah. So that turtle shell pick is actually an ode to the muse of eroticism that's uh, cool yeah and then uh number seven is the eldest of the muses very magical number this number seven is going to be super important all things seven are, are very important mm -hmm. uh Gurdjieff has the law of seven and sure enough the seventh muse socrates is the seventh speaker his muse will be calliope and she is the eldest of all the sisters, the most mature. Um, she is very subtle. She's extremely subtle. Uh, she doesn't stand out or overexpress. She has like reticence at its finest, uh, in its finest. So uh, Calliope, oh, by the way, almost all of these muses' names have variations on the spelling which plays into what we were saying earlier about mm -hmm. it's not about the letter. It's about it's about the living word of it. So uh, she is uh, the chief of epic poetry, and she is known as the one with the beautiful voice. And if you are using the word eloquence, you are basically saying her name. If you say that they did it very eloquently, mm -hmm. you're saying they did it in the spirit of Calliope. And so that's the seventh speaker. And then the eighth, uh, and that's the end of the symposium. Uh, officially, he's the last speaker. And just when uh, he gets done and everybody thinks that they, now we know we came to the solution, an eighth interloper comes busting into the room, drunk. This is Alcibiades. And this character is crucial to social engineering. This Alcibiades has popped up a hundred thousand times throughout history, sometimes with the same name. There's an Iliagabalus like 300 years later, and it's basically playing out the same role of Alcibiades. Um, 
and even worshiping Alcibiades. Heliogobulus is a cross-dressing emperor uh, that much, much, much speculation has been channeled into Heliogobulus. But the funny thing is, is there's an earlier echo in Alcibiades, and his muse uh, is uh, Terpsichore, the muse of dance. And mm. part of this is articulated in the blocking of the scene because he comes dancing into the room and he's drunk. So, of course, he's, you know, he's got the drunken master going and he's holding a wreath as a gift. And he gives he, uh, he wants to give the wreath to the host of the party. And he's like, I want to put this on from my head onto yours. And mm -hmm. he comes in. But as he's walking in the room, he uses the wreath strategically to block Socrates, to act like, oh, I didn't see this guy. I, I didn't see this guy. And then he get, goes and makes his little speech, and then he turns and looks at Socrates, and he pretends to be surprised he's there. But we find out later that it was all a ploy, and he was trying to get in the sixth seat. He wants to get into the sixth seat so he can be between Agathon and Socrates and have, like, you know, his two favorite people. And there is a lot of homoerotica. Uh, luckily, I have a stoic lens. That shit don't bother me, so I can read this shit through to the end. Because the homoerotica, it's fiction. This sort of, the story is fiction. So mm -hmm. the, the the fact that it's homoerotic is serving a purpose other than being gay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's serving a different purpose. And I think what it's hiding is the fact that these muses, the muses are the source code. And if you can't get over the homo stuff, then you're not going to tap into the source code. Mm -hmm. And so the stoic lens to see through that has gifted me a, a great amount. Um, and Terpsichore is, uh, has a wreath. Uh, she's always, oh, and a, a tambourine, which in those days was called the um, uh, Tampania. The Tampania is the mm -hmm. tambourine of the Greeks. And then there, uh, the last muse um, will be the, oh, the muse Orania. And Orania is the muse of geometry. She's often depicted with a, a, a orb, a sphere in her hands. And that is the orb of the, a stellar map. It's a, it's a map of the stars. And mm -hmm. so she has master of the angles of the angels of the heavens. This is our jam right here. Orion right. is our is our girl. This is what we were looking for. Mm -hmm. But the thing the thing is, there is no ninth person in the symposium per se. Alcibiades is the last one, but Plato is the one telling the story. He rounds out the story. He has the whole. Uh, he has command over the symposium, so he becomes Orania, and so in a cool way. Uh, Plato is in the ninth seat implicitly, and his muse is Orania because they always say that Plato is the one who rounds out the story. Uh, I've actually read it worded they worded it that way from different authors. They always make a point to say Plato is the one who rounded it out, and sure enough, that's a nod to his muse Orania holding that orb. So let's let's paste these onto our enneagram. Because the Enneagram, I think, is one step closer to the to our audience than the muses. Yeah. And first off, with this diagram that they have with the Enneagram, 
Is this accurate to you where they have the triangle actually connecting the three, six, and the nine? And then like in vortex mathematics, they go from the one to the two, the two to the four. In vortex math mathematics, the way it would be is one to two, two to four, four to eight, eight to seven, seven to five. And then those are always, but in the Enneagram, in this particular dynamic, why do they have these particular numbers touching each other? Yes, here I have a, I actually, I print, I made a special graphic for our purposes that we can actually see side by side the vortex versus the Enneagram heptad. And Great. I can bring, I can bring it in actually here. Um, and you're right, the two heptads are slightly different. Yes, they and, are. Yeah, and when we're just, you know, that's actually part of this new age where we're using just words. It becomes really hard to be super impeccable because we're also very visually oriented. So I often hear people say that vortex math and the Enneagram are uh they are the same order generally but their internal relationship like just like you were saying they're slightly different and so here i'm maybe going to bring it i'm going to bring it freelance so you can see how that heptad is kind of uh it's like a bat signal almost yes and yep and so this is i think of this as tesla's vortex Mm -hmm. And while I was researching for the show, by the way, I found out that, uh, you know, T is a measure of um, magnetics. It's a magnetic measurement. And Tesla has nine formulas that equal T. And so I just, uh, on a whim, I, fl I threw those nine formulas on, the, uh, on, this, uh, on this version of the vortex map. Mm -hmm. So I have the nine formulas in the nine spots. Maybe that's the key to the answers of the universe and everything, but it's a little over my head. I'm just kind of free free flowing. But one thing that's important here, Topher, is the X is lower. Yes. The cross point, yeah, the cross point is much lower here, whereas when we go into the Enneagram heptad, the cross point is way up as much higher. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of see and compare and contrast. And another thing that... Another dividing point that is important in the Enneagram that you, uh, it just gets really convoluted and it's hard. Uh, so you got to check different graphics to kind of have different fractal uh, lens, a different fractal lens to perceive the Enneagram. But very important is the, the, the three groupings of act is in the 891, feel is the 234, and think is the 5, 6, and 7. Mm -hmm. And right, th right there is helpful for people in the personality matrix to kind of orient yourself down to three very likely primary stations to your to what resonates to yourself. When I started uh, studying Enneagram, I realized I'm an act first. And to be an act first, people will look at you like, oh, you're one of those. You act first? And you're like, yeah, I kind of act first. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then, but that's helpful. That's how I never thought that what I everybody else thinks 
and feels before they act. Am I impulsive? Yeah, buddy, you're impulsive. <laughs> mm-hmm. so these are kind of aspects of how it helps you get to know yourself and even explain other people's behavior in your life. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I just I thought this would be helpful to show the difference between Vortex with Tesla and the Enneagram with Gurchev. Uh, very similar, but slightly different because of those bands in between. And I think you were asking about like the number two is a giver, a number eight is a controller. Well, the number eights and the number twos are really going to find each other. They serve each other's purpose very well. And so that that is kind of what's beautiful is if you if you were uh, if you had a bunch of rooms with one of each personality type randomly selected in an experiment, in each one of those rooms, the eights and the twos would find a relationship, and the flavor of that relationship would have a common uh, uh, ex, uh, expletive value. And if you went and polled every eight and every two on their opinion of their counterpart, you would find that even in uh, random groupings, the language and the emotional uh, output of the relationship would be very similar. And mm-hmm. sure enough, it would map on to the eight to the two on the Enneagram. And the same with the other lines. Uh, chance is a seven. I tend to be a one, uh, yeah, kind of. I'm more like a nine with a one wing. So Chance and I, when we're together, I zap into my number ones. And he's he's goes solid in his number sevens. And so he and I are working the relationship between, like, that's Zeus and Athena. You know, these, uh, mm-hmm. I, and I can, you can even go into other movies in modern day and pull out relationships that are exemplar of that line between the seven and the one. So that's a, that's a kind of a good way to explain why those lines are in the places they are. That's wonderful. This, this to me, it has a corollary in my body work with polarity therapy, because what I saw because I, I grew up with the trope, you know, that opposites attract. And I believe that just because I wasn't that discerning. And then what I saw was that opposites kind of do attract, but it's not opposites like it was like it was presented, or at least the way I interpreted it. It's more like what you're showing here in the Enneagram. Like with that two to eight that you're that you're showing it's 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 enough of a difference to create a symmetry does that make sense yeah Yeah, buddy you know you said a word on that last uh your last podcast with thomas uh you said dynamic disequilibrium exactly i had to to write that down man that is glorious Mm -hmm. and it's maybe another way to phrase it would be opposites are complementary to each other. I wouldn't even use the word opposites because that was the point that 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 was the point that Schauberger was trying to make. And that's yeah, the point I'm trying to make too is dynamic disequilibrium allows for life. <laughs> so <laughs> like so you have this caring and generous warm-hearted number 2 is is dynamic it, it isn't in equilibrium with the active controller, but the two of them together are just askew enough where life can happen, where movement can happen. 
Yeah, buddy. Yes. You know, uh, I think that a mentality that everybody is created equal is one of the most destructive things people mm. could ever even buy into. And because of that, democracy has to go to the wind and everybody has to reshape their thoughts to this Enneagram because dynamic disequilibrium is progress. Yes. Totally. Absolutely. And yeah, so, man. so just just uh, to give the audience an idea of how they can actually find out what they are, like where where do you take a test for this? Like, what's the what's the process that you you would best subscribe to people to actually if if they're interested in this type of system? Because I I still want to give people an in to yeah. where they can like do a self diagnosis and then we can travel from like these basic groups into the depth of the muses. Yeah, buddy. Yes. Uh, the Enneagram testing online is uh, fully available. It's almost all helpful. You, you can't go wrong. Uh, but I always recommend people try uh, multiple sources. Uh, if you do one online, uh, try, you know, make sure you do one from a different camp or a different school of thought. Um, uh, and that's kind of one of the beautiful things about the Enneagram is that it's uh, it uh, you, you're not really locked in to any particular. Uh, it's not linear. It's a linear. Um, but then I have a book that I always recommend. It's the Wisdom of the Enneagram by Don Richard Riso and Russ Hudson. That's the book that I'm going by. I think I referred you to this one, mm -hmm. and. Um, uh, it's a complete guide to psychology and spiritual growth for the nine personality types. Um, I really love this book, and I think this book should be uh, kind of a baseline fundamental because a lot of Enneagram groups, uh, since this book came out, there have been flourishes, embellishments, uh, uh, nuances added, and even uh, first, second, and third uh tertiary scores so it gets really complicated but just for beginners it's just uh useful to take multiple tests uh and kind of see what resonates to yourself because the answer is in you it's not in the book so that's why it's hard to say uh or to give people guidance because they should maybe uh try two or three different tests or test types and then see what is really resonating with themselves to keep a gut check going. Um, could, could you repeat the name of that real quick? What was it? Yep. It's the wisdom of the Enneagram here. I have it up right now. The wisdom of the Enneagram by Don Richard Riso and Russ Hudson. Uh, this book is, is really, really useful. It's very, it's a, it's like a, a workbook. It's got uh, little projects in it. Uh, it is so very thorough. I, I think of this as, as one of the best, in my opinion. But other people, you know, you might find another another school of thought. Mm -hmm. And what's really fascinating, just a quick note, uh, the Jesuits are all about this Enneagram. And that plays into my theory, you know, when we use that word, when that word is floating around, everybody's hackles come up, rightly so. Uh, I, I believe that this has been used for social engineering for a very long time, but it turns out the Enneagram is really popular in those Jesuit orders, which makes sense. They love to 
they love to have their hands in all the things. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes a government, you know, <laughs> Let, let's control the mind. And like whether people want to believe it or not, the Jesuit orders, they're they're pretty instrumental in, in the uh, role of government. I'll, I'll just put it at that which is to control the mind. And how do you, like, one of the things that I know within those orders is very well known is that it's scalar physics. If you want a certain result, you control the environment. It, it's, so you, you engineer the environment and that will give you the resultant. So what you need to know is set and setting. What is the set and setting that's always being provided for your mind? So governmente is literally the mind under control. (laughs) If you're always given a set and setting with the media that you're given, and let's just say local jurisdictional mandates and code and stuff like that, if the people like the Jesuits and the orders that are similar to that know these nine psychological like uh i guess you would say portals (laughs) to you they can categorize and know within a certain probability of how you're going to react and i've said this before on the podcast my very first mentor in my professional life he was he started an insurance company and he, he told me from the get, he's like, the insurance companies run run this whole thing. And I was like, as a young man in his 20s, I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, literally the actuaries. It's all actuarial to them. And they're just running probability scripts. And they're like, okay, how can we limit our liability? How can we maximize? And... <laughs> And he was like, they're the ones who underwrite the bonds that underwrite governments. They're the ones who underwrite everything. They're literally the underwriters. And I I had no context for what he was saying. And so when you say people like the Jesuits, you know, are very interested in the Enneagram, of course they are. Because that's your mind. And your mind is where that's that's the main determinant of your decision making. And Ooh. that's what that's what they want to know and control. Or even yeah. if they're not trying to control it, just by knowing it, that increases their probabilistic, probabilistic profit margins. Yes, yeah, sure. They- and they're and they're Saturn, their legacy. They're, they're the Grim Reaper. They're at the end of the thing of just like, you know, okay, let's see. Let's let let's see like what what's our profit margin on this? Guys, Ooh. you got you gotta tie this all the way back, especially in the Western tradition, to the birth certificate and the fact that you've been commoditized. <laughs> Can you see this is a holographic picture? This is not just this linear, linear literalist thing. If if you if if you are commoditized, which we know for a fact that is true, that means that there is an interest in how you're going to do. 
there's no commodity out there where the person that's holding the note on the commodity isn't inquiring into what <laughs> what that commodity is doing. Like mm. they want to know. <laughs> yeah. Well, guess what? You've been put in a tranche with, I bet you they tranche everybody by these different numbers. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, uh, so one thing that I find really fascinating is that uh, in Enneagram community, there's a generalization that uh, a very large proportion of the world is a number six personality type. Now, it's some, uh, there's a strong leaning to the six in the collective. There's also, uh, currently, there's almost a shift to the nine because the computer is how people get things done. So there's a slothfulness of productivity is, is kind of the new wave. But uh, originally, uh, uh, predominantly historically, the number six is a strong gravity. Strong mm -hmm. gravity is a high priority in everybody's life to understand who they're going to be loyal to, right? Uh, especially in like the dating circle. If you're if you're single, you're always looking to put the 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 perfect person in your number six, somebody who you can be loyal to, uh, somebody who you're fearful of their of a negative opinion from them. So a loyalist has a shadow of fear, and so this is a vulnerability. It's a priority. It's really a valuable aspect. And it's also who you're going to have six with, who you're going to have intercourse with, um, mm -hmm. this number six. But I have to point out, who, what is the name of the patron saint of the Jesuits? Ignatius Loyalists. These are the loyalists. <laughs> and so they literally seated the, the, the patriarch in the seat. I call this the, seat, the siege perilous. Um, so his name is actually in the number six position. And the fact that in the Greek pantheon, Apollo is a number six and Ignatius Loyola is a number six. Get me started. You get me started. That is profound. That mm -hmm. is so profound that Apollo and Ignatius Loyola are, are arm in arm over here. But, um, but yes, uh, the, the social engineering, a great amount of it ha uh, takes place uh, over what you are fearful of. And they have got fear down to a science. And so this number six, uh, so uh, I guess it's important that we just remind people, we're not talking about you as an individual, we're talking in a social engineering context about the grand homunculus, you know? Uh, so yeah, uh, Ignatius Loyola, uh, his whole team is about uh, optimizing the value of this gravity around the number six. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's also, it's kind of um, because if you're, uh, if you're sensitive to sexual innuendo, if you have this repressive personality, if you're all hoity-toity about your words, then a lot of subliminal messaging can be hidden under sexual connotation and it slides past your radar into your subconsciousness because you're so prim and proper about your thoughts that you're clearly the uh uh bj clinton 
clearly B.J. Clinton's initials didn't imply that he was going to be giving out B.J.'s in the office. No, no, that's not. So people, they think it's funny, but that is totally the uh, the blueprint. It's working the blueprint of the framework and people's hoity-toitiness around sex that actually sublimates a great amount of information. So and Sigmund, Sigmund Freud would be patting me on the back right now. Dude, you're going you're gonna to laugh your butt off. So I just had a podcast with uh, Michelle Lundquist of Michelle's Healing Home. You know, Mark, yeah. And we got into the gravy of six because my, one of my companies is biochar. And so biochar is carbon. It's six. It's it it is this Capricornian energy of structure, but also if you know anything about the Capricornian energy, is it might appear very structured on the one end, but boy is it about reproduction on the other end. <laughs> That's awesome. Like totally, it's always like. Let's just say there's a there's a very freaky side to the Capricornian <laughs> energy, and it's right there in that six, like you're saying. It's like, okay, that's who we're dating. That's who we want to have uh, a symmetry with and on the physical level. Um, we want all everything to fit, which is totally six, six. Like, that's the six, 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 if you think about it. And... In the Enneagram with this, what's the relation of the 369? Is that even something that we should even give attention to? Or is that like some sort of like off off put thing? Because I see that there, the triangle does connect the three, the six, and the nine. Yes. Um, just, to, just to put a bow on the link to, to the vortex mathematics side of it. Because we have yes. to explain why in vortex mathematics, why the three, six, nine is outside of the one, two, four, eight, seven, five. Yes, yes. Um, the three, six, nine is a, you could think of this as if you were going to do a field test on yourself, you could almost uh, uh, boil down like a very quick field uh, kit of questions down to maybe three questions about how to assess a, per, a person. And I'm sure this is done in corporate boardrooms on high ninja status levels, way over our heads. Mm -hmm. But essentially, what first thing you would do is assess if the if you or the person you're, uh, you're inquiring after is uh, find out if their primary uh, patterning is of the thinking type, the feeling type, or the acting type. And once you do that, you have them in one of the uh, three triangles. If they're a thinker, you could kind of put them in with a seven, six, five, potentially. If they're a doer, you put them in the, set, uh, the eight, nine, ones. And if they're a feeler, that's the number three, you would put them in with the two, three, fours. And now you're just two questions away from locking them into one of the other two uh, of, the, of that group. And so the next question forward would uh, you notice the color code. So like if we're in the thinking group, you're either a six, seven or a five. Well, the five is more withdrawn thinker. Mm -hmm. A number six is a more uh, um, compliant, flexible. And a number seven is more aggressive or assertive. So this is your assertive thinker. 
This is your compliant thinker, and this is your withdrawn thinker type. Mm -hmm. And so right there in two questions, we've already, uh, do they think a lot? Then they're one of these three. And are they withdrawn, compliant, or um, aggressive? Now we know, are they the blue, the green, or the red of the thinking trines? So that's a real quick way to get a read on a, on a, even a situation. It doesn't always have to be a person. It can be like, it can be a situation that you're dealing with, a puzzle that you're trying to suss out. Um, so this works on yourself and with, uh, with others. Mm -hmm. So we started this kind of backwards in the sense of, I want to know why Plato's symposium is so important and why linking it to the Enneagram and the muses, like what, what is the benefit of that for the everyday person? Or at least the, when I say everyday person, let's just say the audience that's listening to this. Wow. Great question, my friend. For one, Enneagram and Symposium are both nine letters long. They both add up to the answer of the universe and everything. They both have a gematrological value of 42. 42 is a highly occulted number. Uh, <laughs> uh, in, the answer uh, is 42. The, the answer is 42. So yes, <laughs> they, they do. They have a, a, that common root value. Um, and uh, I think that what it's done for me is to know how we got here now uh, is, is empowered by uh, having command over the, the past, the history that, that brought us here. And, uh, and the, still today, the relationships of the characters in the symposium are still playing out in the dynamics of the collective in vast and profound ways. Uh, I could go for, I could make a lifetime out of just lecturing on this topic, but I'll give one really good example I think you'll like. Socrates is the mystagogue of science. He knows that he knows nothing. He is the midwife of the soul. He's going to birth out, he's gonna draw out your bad ideas. He's actually going to make you confess uh, the thing, how uh, your knowledge is incomplete and put you and perplex you because he's uh, asking questions. And the more you answer them, the more you realize you're like him. You actually don't know. You know now that you don't know anything that you thought you knew. So that that's his, his whole Kung Fu technique. And uh, that's number right? seven? That's number seven. That's chance. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And so this mystagogue of science is profound because um, uh, through studying some of the philosophers uh, since the symposium, I have learned about the detriment of scientific optimism. And so scientific optimism, now what happens, we're getting into the shadow of this enthusiast, this epicure. If the epicure is not being cho choosy, if they're just letting anything come in and go, they become a glutton. And now socially, our scientific optimism has run amok and it has gone completely gluttonous. 
and everybody wants the answer to everything to be, oh, surely there's a specialist out there who's smarter than me, who knows that I know nothing, and therefore I have no responsibility, and I'm just going to pawn off everything to science. I'm going to give it all. I love this. I love that you connected that to Saturn. Um, uh, technically, I'm, Jupiter. Jupiter. Wait, because in your, like, so I'm actually, let me show you. I'll share your your gift that you made here. So let me make sure that this is big enough. But the, but the next one up is Saturn. Seven is Jupiter and eight is Saturn, which is so super appropriate that they're, working in cahoots and they're both the uh this is the the aggressive spear the 783 is the aggressive spear uh so having jupiter and saturn at the base of aggression uh is uh pretty spot on in my read in terms of planetary relationships so that's what i'm sorry i misspoke you can see neptune and saturn right yes so that being, you're saying that that's like the glutton that has everything, like it's like consumption, right? Like the, the actually, 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 the number seven, Jupiter has the glutton, and then but Saturn has lust as a shadow, so Jupiter is gluttony, and uh, Saturn is lust or control are the shadows, domineering is Saturn's shadow, but they're so close, they're so close, they really are. Okay. I'm just the what I, I'm I'm framing this in the archetypal speak of of the luminaries. Yes. I, I'm I, I'm going into that into that because you know, for those of you out there, like the, the we're getting into deep archetypes that run within all of us. And it's not that we just have one archetype running through us our entire life. Timing is everything. We have, we have, you know, times and seasons in our life where these different energies move through us and sponsor us. These are the angles or the angels, and the way the luminaries are, they aren't these, you know, bodies that are you know quadrillions of miles away. They are just like if you had a freckle on your cheek, or a birthmark on your bum. Yeah. They are they're just the 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 last part of you before the metaphysical. And so they're yeah. representative. God always gives us a mirror. God always is is giving us the capacity to see ourselves so that we can <laughs> so that we can get better. <laughs> that's the way that's at least the way I see it. So that's that we true. So that we can transcend this, you know, that we can like be like, oh, I'm in this world, but I'm not of it. Yes. And the more I listen to your depth of knowledge when it comes to the Enneagram, man, I cannot, I cannot stop thinking about the work of fiction of uh, American gods. Yeah, the one, what a masterpiece that was and what a. What a hyper sigil. It was a hyper sigil. I mean, just amazing. And if for those of you that haven't seen it, it was a show. I believe it was an adaptation of uh, one of Neil Gaiman. I think it's Neil Gaiman, the author. Mm -hmm. Was it Neil Gaiman? Yeah, yeah. 
Neil Gaiman's book, American Gods, and the the TV adaptation of it is just so good because part of the what I got from it was that these gods or these archetypes, you could call them demigods, they need our attention. And they're vying for our attention. And if they're not given, like the center of the Enneagram, which is you, if if it's not animated by you, it, it starts to run sub-programs to try and find some way to get back into your good graces. Because the human attention is the most powerful elixir of life that there is <laughs> it literally is the elixir of life is our attention so and it it reverses the need scale that's what i loved about it is like when i was growing up i was under the impression that we needed them and it seemed so trite <laughs> but the way this book presents it is, is that essentially they're always working some sort of rhetoric or marketing campaign on your subconscious for you to give them your life force. And then that made the Greek gods so much more alive for me. These, these deep archetypes of you know the mars moon neptune venus mercury uranus jupiter saturn and pluto you know so how how do you feel about what i just said does that is that hitting for you at all yeah man this is such an important conversation it's such an important conversation a couple things i'd like to say one is uh you know the it's funny because while the jesuits are all about it christians are losing their panties over this they are totally in a in a tizzy and i just want to say anybody with the christian lens just to understand you can't test god you can't no. test god no. it's something else it's not even in this conversation so all the monotheist christians i respect what you're all about and i just want them to know that this is not a claim on god there no. god is not in here because the symposium is called the test it's called the touchstone, the test. And this is about uh, the noble lie. This is about social engineering and having a tiered system. Plato's Republic is, is, the, is the, uh, the blueprint of governance. And so uh, th uh, the Christian lens really gets incendiary when we start talking about these, this pantheon of, of deities. And they want to say, these are the Nephilim, blah, blah, blah. Well, the, your government is the Nephilim. Figure it out. <laughs> mm -hmm. so so i just want to make that allowance that i'm not these are not god not at all these are social engineering mechanics this is the cog continuation of government this is the cog cogito ergo sum this is the thoughts that consume you and make you think that you are <laughs> that's so, so good I just wanted to say that because I know that the Christians are going to come with pitchforks and torches. They're going to, they want to, uh, and then if they see that I got tarot cards, they're going to have, they're, they're going to be so upset. So, but they're falling, they're falling into that, that whole thing that you brought up earlier of what number would that loyalist be the six? 
sticks totally totally you know they, and, they, that makes complete sense because yes. the fear is there with them that's the thing i always like without without fail mm -hmm. is the fear like the actual energetics of the fear state can can you see the can you see the thing again not yet no let me it likes to there we go so <sighs> The loyal, the loyal skeptic is. It, would that be a liken to the re, like the deep religious mind? Like, and when I say religious, as six, like the Capricorn, the like rigid mindset, like the six, the superstructure that's so solid, and you know all the drone bees build for their queen bee. You know yes. they build the beehive out of the six, the hexagram, all the time, and then yes. we have. We have certain city states that you know fly the the I'll just call it the esteria that would fit the hexagram, and that's that is the structure of governance. It's like you know they say don't talk about you know gov government or politics and religion, right? They're the uh -huh. same. <laughs> so funny, and especially because it's a command order. <laughs> right we're not supposed to because it's forbidden it's hitting that fear false energy appearing real oh that's so good so you have it so did i say that correctly so mm -hmm. they're the loyal skeptic they that becomes the most let's just call it legacy religious type of mind yes okay and, and you know the fact the flag that flag you mentioned I call this six. I call it the siege perilous. And on the micro, it's like, who are you going to marry and commit your life to? Uh, and what expectation have you built up into that person and that uh, that bond, that uh, that contract for life? And but when you put it onto the uh, macro, onto a global community, the empty seat number six becomes a prophetic messiah to come. And so this empty seat at the the empty seat in the symposium becomes a bit of an antichrist, a bit of a messiah yet to arrive. So, bro, I mean, think about how that's playing out right now. Think about yeah, like buddy. this whole red, this perfect red heifer thing. The whole have, have fear, have fear. <laughs> the red have fear. Have fear. Uh, I just I want to I want to say a few things. One is I learned that um, uh, I had a friend who was an awesome Christian, soldier, soldier Christian, taught me up, taught me up, and he told me that Catholicism has uh, has created uh, the the concept of purgatory. Purgatory is like a waiting room in between the uh, the last day. And he he tells me that's a that's a Catholic thing. Christians we don't really do purgatory, right? And I was like, wow, yeah. that's awesome. That deviation is so important. And then I learned later that there actually is a purgatory concept in Old Testament uh, storytelling. That uh, to them the phrase that they used was, um, it's called the bosom of Abraham. 
the bosom of Abraham is this waiting place for the where uh, you'll be pulled out of purgatory for the special ones, and they are held close to the chest. Well, the bosom of Abraham is eroticized. It's an eroticized promise. And so this, uh, this concept of a hyperdimensional special place in purgatory, that has been marketed and repackaged and resold to all the zealots. And so basically, the idea of zealotry is that we have a special place for you if you just go do the suicide mission. And so I just wanted to put all that in context, that all of that has a lot of prophetic weight around the number six. It's so profound. And then uh, I, real quick, Socrates in the symposium, he was angling on Agathon number five. And you can see the line between the seven to the five. He was trying to get close to and understand. He wanted better command over tragedy. And Agathon is the host of the party. Um, and Socrates, funny enough, he's uh, he wasn't invited. He actually weaseled his way in. But what's interesting is scientific optimism is captured because it's uh, because of money. And uh, Agathon's name is good. His name translates to good. And the number five has greed as their shadow. Uh, mammon, uneven weights and measures is the shadow of this number five. And so today, people think they're talking about science, but what's fascinating is they're actually talking about mammon because so much of the scientific procedure has been captured by money. And so it, there is... Uh, so it's not, uh, it's not only that I can give you a little other side of that. You're going to yeah. really enjoy this because it builds on that archetype that you just brought yeah. up. A lot of people talk to me about over unity when it comes to power generation. And I'm of the mind that you get what you deserve. And so what makes you deserve to ha have extra bonus energy? Because when you look into the consciousness of the men that supposedly that had created over unity, mm -hmm. uh, they earned it. <laughs> <laughs> they, nice. they, they earned it. And so what, because you have some fiat money in your, in your, in your pocket, you think you deserve to have like essentially like endless energy. It's like you get what you deserve. Like you have to weigh your heart against a feather. Like that is a real freaking thing. And wow. so I'll have these women that look like really sweet, you know, middle-aged to older women. And when, when you talk to them about over unity, it's like, it's like a werewolf comes through them. Like they want to devour. Like the, the energetic presence of like what appears to be like somebody that's sweet and whatever. And it's not just women, it's everyone, but like the majority of what I've come across is like, even if I did know the secrets, I wouldn't share it with you. <laughs> because <laughs> your energetics suck especially right. especially when you when you, when that little carrot of like you can have more than you put in yes 
and they and that's why I yell at people <laughs> on my chat that say free energy because I'm like, uh, there's no such thing as free. Great point. Great there's, point. There's no such thing as free. If you are gonna, if you're stating something that has more output energy than input energy, that's over unity. You know, that's not, a tech. That's free. a tech. But do you deserve that? And so that totally plays to that whole five that 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 correlation that you just made. Absolutely, and you know what? Like our words are hitting on so many chords from the Republic here. Uh, Socrates, in his in his uh, uh, defense of himself, <clears throat> not only does he say that uh, uh, you guys shouldn't uh, punish me for for this 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 uh, kangaroo court. He says, you guys should give me a stipend for being such an awesome teacher. I should get paid out of the banks, out of the reserve banks of the of the of the high class. I should be living it up for the rest of my life for my good works. Mm -hmm. So his argumentation, and that's the funniest part of the of the story is less people voted to kill him than after he said you guys should actually be paying me for the rest of my life so I can I can retire. Then he had more people vote on how he should die. So he actually pissed them off by uh, expressing that he is uh, he is deserving of extra grace. Mm -hmm. And the word grace is a, is an undeserved gift. Uh, getting something that you're, that you're not worthy of or un, it's undes, undeserved, undeserved. That's what uh, grace means. I had no idea that's what that that's what that means. Yes, in this line between the seven and the five has an interesting relationship around grace. Um, yeah, so this is we're we're really touching all these psychic chords to the to the collective all the way back two thousand years, Topher. Mm -hmm. This is still a thing. We're having a conversation that is that old and that timeless. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, the the aspect of grace is actually um, that is um, that is the Oh man, that's uneven weights and measures. Uh, so th there's nothing for free. Well, uh, strange thing about manipulating the value of money and tipping the scales and having that central reserve banking issue is that the value of money inflation is manipulating grace. Mm -hmm. And what is this product? What does the product deserve in my labor energy? And that offput between uh, uh, a fair exchange and everybody wanting their chunk of this transaction is actually generating a a, a negative grace. Uh, you know what I mean? There's that the product is no longer has the value of that it should because there's so many people uh, want a piece of the pie. So yeah, it's so profound. The relationship between scientific optimism and uh, uneven weights and measures, uh, because uh, Greek, the society, Athens, was at the precipice in their day when the symposium happened. It was a culmination. It was just before a huge collapse. And so for us to have the same conversations again, it's just beautiful that we're actually echoing the ancestors uh, in, the, in their relationship. And, you know, something about this Mammon and Agathon, his name means good. And my path on the on the road to sovereignty, it was an eye-opener 
to realize that the word good actually means a, a redemption, a redeemable. So to be good is to be redeemable. Well, the question is, yes. Uh, so if, uh, like if you have a criminal record, then you can't, you have, you have a hard time because of all these bad things on your record. So you're not redeemable. But if you go and you clear up your record, you get it all sealed. Now you're redeemed. Now you have value. You can go forward. And this is the difference. This is uneven weights and measures. Uh, it's really fascinating uh, how much of social engineering is right here on my little dry erase board. <laughs> it's because this is the point that we should really hammer home is the archetype is timeless. Yes. And just like we've spoken about before, where angels are just the angles, it's not like an angle is an abstract. An angel is an abstract that is always there. And it's just the timing of life that will determine what angle or angel or archetype is actually moving through your particular locus of continuity. Because you are a locus of continuity. That's... <laughs> that's the closest thing I could get to, to actually describing the human experience. It's a locus of continuity. Like you have successive moments that you've pieced in a line and it appears that it has X, Y, Z characteristics to it, but it's a locus of continuity. <laughs> and that locus of continuity, depending on where it's, it's particular geographical uh aspecting is will kind of determine what part of the symposium you're playing out <laughs> wow wow in the, uh geographic you you made the statement that your location is your frequency yes i love that i love that tofer that's glorious i love that thank you for that gift and uh I'm I'm uh I'm looking at the word assemblage point. It's perfect. I love that. The the assemblage point. Um yeah, that's a that's another we've uh, I'm gonna say it. I'll just put it on the record now. I have discovered that the uh Millennium Falcon is the Enneagram. I call it the Millenniagram Falcon. <laughs> For... Oh, this is a great this is a good transition. This is a great transition, Topher. Let me tell this story. Do it. I lived in a glorious castle in Boulder, Colorado. This house was amazing. I would love uh, to share some pictures and some images of this house. Please, it, please it, do. Uh, well, but it, someday. I don't have it on me right now. But, okay. Uh, the house was constructed by a very unique architect in his time, um, and we can we can track him down. I think maybe we should. Uh, going forward mm -hmm. his does his design methodology was to inflate a hot air balloon mm -hmm. halfway and then put the adobe dome structure on a half inflated air balloon yeah and build uh and then uh this cast becomes the outer the outer dome yes so so the entire house is a adobe dome house mm -hmm amazing interior with teak wood spiral staircases a chimney stack going up through the middle double it's a double uh, leveled chimney that like goes up to the second floor mm -hmm. 
the whole house was gorgeous with its view of the mountain range. I live, I still live, a blessed life beyond words. Grace should be my middle name. This house was gorgeous. I mm-hmm. brought my daughter to impress her with the house. And when we pulled up to the to the driveway, her first words, her eyes are bulging out. She looks at me, she says, it's so, it's so scientific. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, that's forever one of her quotes. That's one of the best quotes of my life. So her first impression of this house is is immortalized in my in my in my uh, bio. bio. Um, in time, I came to discover more and more about this house. I learned from the neighbor that the one time one day there was a mysterious limousine parked outside of the house for an entire weekend, and the neighborhood was a buzz about this limousine, and it wasn't until the limousine was gone before the neighbors could come and ask the owner, so who'd you have here hanging out at the house all weekend? Oh, you know, George Lucas. Mm -hmm. George Lucas stayed the weekend in my castle. Mm -hmm. And, And now this little nugget keeps unpacking itself into my, my personal experience because now I look in this house with new eyes and I realize Am I in Yoda's hut? Am I on Dagobah when I'm in my house? Sure enough. (laughs) This house has hidden caves behind walls. It has hidden corridors, has hidden attic chambers. It has mysteries within mysteries within itself. And I'm realizing that is actually not not only likely, uh, it's it's almost, you couldn't convince me otherwise. But then it was... uh, but then it was a couple of years later, I'm getting into the Enneagram, and I'm realizing that the Millenniagram Falcon actually fits perfectly into this map. In the number six seat is the captain's seat. This is where Han Solo is, uh, controls the, the whole thing. Well, there was actually a room, the sunroom, in this Adobe house had uh, panels on the windows that looked like the panels to the Millennium Falcon. And I'm realizing that the guy who invented this Adobe house was a huge Star Wars enthusiast. And he was giving an homage to the art that is uh, star awareness. Star Wars is telling us to be aware of the stars. And that was, yes. And so I kind of look like a goofball because I make a lot of Star Wars references uh, but the reason I do that is because I, I find it is the bedrock of the social engineering of my generation. And I can access timeless archetypes that everybody can relate to and see into my mind and, and see eye to eye with me in a powerful way, because I can now relate this to uh, the Millenniagram Falcon. Uh, and it even has a Dagobah uh, play. Uh, Yoda is actually up here. He is the hermit card. Uh, so the Star Wars metaphors are really enriching as well in this project. Uh, and what's fascinating is I lived in a house that was based on, I think, both Yoda's uh, Yoda's uh, hut and the Millennium Falcon. And now you and I are going to talk about using this Enneagram into uh, a design for homes. So, and so that that's an amazing adventure to come full circle. 
I'm I'm so happy that we both have had the dome experiences. Yeah, but so I'm gonna share my screen. Let me know if you can see it, Gabe. Can you mm, see? Not yet. Oh, there it is. Yep. It just takes a second. Okay. So everybody knows that I've been geeking hard on this new calendar. So people can see it. This is the pentagonal calendar. Okay. This pentagon, the reason why the pentagon is so incredible is it encodes the phi ratio, which is God's signature of phylotaxis. It's pretty much the way the spiraled energy from the heavens comes down. And within every pentagon, you have a pentagram, which is just a star that's made out of three triangles that hold the only incommensurate geometry. The incommensurate geometry is a geometry where you have uh, essentially what looks like a triangle. You can bisect it in any direction from the top apex and it gets a self-repeating pattern in both directions. So it's a fractal that makes a hologram. <laughs> it's perfect, mm -hmm. okay? And so I was turned on by this, this calendar because this is measuring light. Like this is something that we can see and we experience. And we all know all the, the fuckery that's going on above us to kind of cut us off from the heavens. It's not just the light of the sun, but it's, it's there's some stuff going on above us that's not wanting us to be aware of the this wonderful energy that's coming down. Okay, so if you double a a, pentag a pentagon, you get a I think it's a decagon. Okay, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so a decagon is the way. I format my domes, my star domes. So you can see that there's two pentagons. Yes. So there's 10 pickup points for the star dome. But you have five areas that you can actually come into it. So all the outside of this is essentially the, the degrees that you see in this right so you yeah, have yeah. you have different seasons of the home and i also if i can if it's if my clients give me the leeway i actually will do both a vastu and a real um feng shui diagram of the property so that we're we we are coordinating the energies correctly yes, yes. okay now, just as a aside, and I, I probably told you this story before, but just like you were in this Adobe inflatable dome, the very first dome that I saw that got me excited was on 60 Minutes, where they this old man was able to stay on the barrier island in North Carolina by this Italian architect who blew up his his dome home. Because no insurance, we're back to insurance. No insurance companies would insure him because that island kept getting wrecked by insurance, by uh, hurricanes. 
Wow. So he puts up this dome. It survives the next storm and then 60 minutes goes ahead and like features it. And my dad and I watched that and my dad's like, that's the way you should do it. Wow. That stuck with me because it was just concrete. They did the pneumatic expansion and uh, there you are, you're on Dagobah. That put me on Dagobah. That (laughs) that literally put me in Buckminster because I grew up going to Epcot. You know, Epcot was like four hours away from my house. So my parents, like, that's where they took us on holidays. We just went to Epcot. We didn't go anywhere else. And so I grew up seeing that huge, you know, Buckminster Fuller sphere there. That's what the Epcot ball is. It's a nine frequency, you know, Bucky ball. And so... I'm in Dagobah. I'm in that. <laughs> and by the way, I had Star Wars, you know, Return of the Jedi sheets. Like I was, I'm, I'm right there with you. Like, Same. <laughs> yeah, my Return of the Jedi sheets were the bomb, man. And of course, like Yoda and the Eastern mysticism that was coming through the intelligence, just the 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 whole uh, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey was perfected in that in in the first three uh movies not not the first three that are now Mm. have come up not the prequels but the first three movies the george lucas animatronic type of movies were awesome yeah so here we have now we're back into the dome okay and so when i saw this calendar this calendar right here where I was like, wow, this is actually, this is actually more of what I experienced, especially in Central America. Cause I was only like eight degrees off the equator, nine degrees off the equator. So awesome. we didn't, we did not have like the, 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 the seasons, like it's like, okay, you know, there's a winter, spring, summer, and fall. We didn't have that near the equator. Everything had to deal with rainfall. And like when the heat of the sun came. So right at the winter solstice, like winter in Central America is actually like pure summer. Because the daylight doesn't change all that much when you're when you're near the equator, you might get like a half an hour difference in daylight. But the way you could say summer is, is there's no rain. And it's not, it's not like a full quarter of the year. It's more of like a fifth of the year. And then spring for them, or what's right after summer, is the storm season. And the storm season's like a third of the year. And then summer and autumn, or like what they call summer in the Northern Hemisphere is what they call little summer. So after the storms come, then you get very consistent, uh, you know, s- uh, sun in the morning and then uh, rain at night. And then autumn and fall are full on monsoon. So it's like two, it's almost like two fifths of the year is just like you're having a lot of rain all day long. Yeah. Yes. And, then, and then right at the winter solstice, right on the 21st, we used to joke about it. We'd actually have ayahuasca ceremonies on the winter solstice or at least that week and it was just like somebody turned the spigot off you went from like (laughs) straight monsoon 
in like November, early December, which was so gross to be there. And then it's just like God just turned the spigot off. And then you were in straight sun for a few months. So yeah. to me, having the fifths made a lot more sense just because that's what I was experiencing. And then you and I've had a lot of fun talking about, you know, the the four fixed constellations and the royal fixed stars and their movement <laughs> and all yeah. these things. And so, and then I've I've been charting the last 10 years, especially when the spring equinox is, and the spring equinox varies. Because the equinox is 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 the equal daylight to the equal um, nighttime. Right. There's a there's a there's a slight variation on that, but to keep it simplistic, it's just like as equal as you can get, <laughs> and it's not always the same. So mm -hmm. to put it on you know March twenty first is kind of an arbitrary thing. So when I was seeing that this lined up with the winter solstice and the summer solstice perfectly, because the middle of the summer is like dead center, it's midsummer. It's like literally the midsummer holiday is right there on the on the summer solstice. And that the third, because when we have like the spring equinox, you're not going from like winter to spring in like one day. There's like a warm up period and then you have the equinox. That makes sense. And so this this charting made so much sense to me. And so I was like, dude, this is just. I've been building sundials. Because <laughs> because this is the layout and I'd actually see inside of my dome because I have cupolas in my domes. And so, like, this is a cupola. This would be an opening to the dome, right? And so the sun near the equator yes. would come down and in. And, like, if this is the side profile of the dome. Nice. That the light would come in, and it would it would make that, uh, what's that uh, symbol called that, that you have up behind you or you had up behind you? It's... Um, Looks like a figure eight, uh, analema. Analema, yep. And I didn't even, I would see that, like I would chart it because I'd be giving massages in there. And I was like, huh, the sun's there, the sun's there. And then it, it I saw it in uh, the movie Out, Outcast with uh, Tom Hanks, where he drew yep. the analema in the cave. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you and I have been living in Plato's cave because a dome is literally like my mentor and dome creation. He called them bed wombs. And the cave has oh, been has been analogous to the womb or the womb of creation, right? And so you you you're in this curvilinear natural-esque shape that then resonates with you because there's nothing on your body that's rectilinear. That's awesome. That is so awesome. I'm writing that word down. I love your, I love your language. <laughs> which, which word? <laughs> Recti rectilinear. Yeah, there's nothing rectilinear in a dome. Well, like it depends. Like you can have rectilinear furniture, but the structure we're talking uh -huh. about the structure and we're talking about being in Plato's cave and we're talking yes. about the, 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 the Campbell's hero's journey where 
just like you were saying, you know, you know, Yoda takes young Luke and Luke is going into this like cavernous thing to to meet his biggest fear, right? Yeah. He, he's meeting, you know, the Darth Vader <laughs> and having that energy. And so I hope everybody that's listening to this or watching this can actually start to see how holotropic life is. You are being worked on on every angle at all times. <laughs> and depending on where you are, because frequency is location, and when you are, because frequency is location, these different archetypes play through. Can you can you show people your Millennial Falcon Enneagram thing? Because I thought it was like the coolest thing I'd seen. I, I didn't pull it off your uh your uh telegram chat let's see uh let me see if i can pull it out uh yeah one thing about oh it's one okay. thing about the, the enneagram millenniagram falcon is um learning that the front piece of the enneagram of the millennium falcon is called uh uh it's for grabbing shipping containers, but it's called a uh, double mandible is how they describe uh, the uh, the Millennium Falcon. And by calling it a double mandible with this uh, pronounced gap in the front of it, it really brought my mind to this crucial jump point between the four and the five in the uh, in the Enneagram between the. Uh, the, let me think. The observer with a shadow of greed is number five. And then the individual with a shadow of envy is the number four. And just a quick point. Uh, the greed of the number five is the same as jealousy. And the envy of the number four is so similar to jealousy. And so one thing I've learned through studying the Enneagram is nuance between jealousy and envy and the fact that Humanity generally interchanges those words maybe a little, they might, we just might have been a little wrong with our words. And so that crucial difference between jealousy and envy is actually what opened my thoughts to appreciate that that four to the five differential is really, oh, here, let me send you this one. Here we go. This was, this came up in the news the same, like the same day you and I planned to do the show. And so sometimes I actually allow myself to believe that they're watching us in particular and that this was a gift targeting our work. Here you go. This is a good one to pull up. So the same day you and I were planning to do the show, there's a headline in the news about, um, okay, I sent it to you. Great. I'm pulling it up right now. Am I? All right. Uh, in the news, they may, uh, they, uh, for one, the Japanese moon lander landed upside down uh, on the moon. Whatever. It's all story time. It's all story time, but that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of reward in analyzing the stories. So the upside down moon lander that Japan uh, is like, meh, close enough is close enough is perfect. And they're just going to leave it up there upside down. 
What's amazing to me, Topher, do you remember our first show together? No, I, I described, don't. <laughs> I, described, <laughs> I described the Capoeira kick that initiated That's me into right. Capoeira. Yes, I do. Tell people it's about a, this. Uh, so uh, I thought I was hot shit when I was young. I was at massage school, and I meet this beautiful redheaded goddess who's a dance instructor. And she's uh, she pulls me aside. She says, oh, so you're a martial artist, huh? She's like, why don't you come to my class and tr try some capoeira? And I was like, I couldn't even say the word. So I show up to her class, and she pulls me in at the end of the class, and she puts a move on me that absolutely captured my soul forever. And uh, her name is Anna, and her last name is almost the same as me, Peterson. So she has been my anonymous for a very long time. Uh, <laughs> And what's amazing, Topher, is I found. Can you uh, can you focus on me real quick? I want to show you this up close. Yes. Uh, so what I've discovered when I when you and I did that first show, I told you that uh, um, the Capoeira is my is my path, and I also mentioned that I have this aunt who is into the tarot, and mm -hmm. she warned me when I started this. She was like, "Be careful. This is a relationship that's personal to you." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." I see social engineering in the tarot cards, and I'm worried about the, the collective of humanity and that Carl Jung's technology has been synthesized in a, in a non-organic fashion, and this is the strings of the grand homunculus. And she's like, it's personal. You're missing it. It's personal. Hmm. Shit got personal, Topher. This is the Capoeira kick that initiated me 20 years ago. <sighs> this is Anna Peterson. She had red hair. <laughs> the telemetry data on the toes of this kick, I can tell you, is ergonomically perfect. The fact that this foot is pointing this way and the other foot is at a kilter off the other way, that's how your hip displacement has to be to get the torque. Yeah. This is expressing the exact torque required to do the move that initiated me and i was a fool mm -hmm. to miss it and so what's so profound and what is really getting like i don't know sometimes you know i don't i thought i was vain i thought i thought i already believed the world revolved around me but then i started <laughs> i already thought that i didn't need any more convincing but this card is hitting me in such a powerful personal way and what i realized is i i thought i had dodged the kick it's 20 years later and the second kick has just knocked my teeth out of my head literally <laughs> literally hey that it's break so... the breakdance fighting you can't get away from it the breakdance fighting will come back and bite you it does man it does <laughs> it's so fun it's so fun so yeah i'm just now getting the second kick and that is the warning that my aunt gave me she's like it's personal. You're not seeing it through the through the way it's supposed to work. So I am totally humbled on a new level because sure enough, I'm now newly initiated in a whole new way to appreciate what this uh, what this deck is actually saying. And if you come over to the Slick Dissident, you'll see uh, you'll see some of my revelations that there are other Capoeira moves. I found the musical instruments, and Capoeira is the symposium. Capoeira wow. is the symposium. And now go read book three of Plato's Symposium and try to prove me wrong. Book three of Plato's Symposium is all about gymnastics 
in being an excellent athletic gymnast and a musical expert. And there is no art in the world that fulfills Plato's Republic Book Three better than Capoeira. And so my life path is taking profound significant import, and it is to incorporate Plato's Symposium with Capoeira, with the Enneagram, and uh, in effect, uh, uh, to live it, to bring it to life and activate this knowledge. It is wonderful. And so when J Japan, which by the way, Japan and uh, Brazil, oh, oh, hold on, I gotta say this. This procyon flower is on the flag of Brazil. The Brazilian flag is green and yellow uh, and blue. This is the Brazilian flag. And mm -hmm. so in a synthetic fashion, they actually gave everybody an animus attaching to this card, not like me. The rest of the world is gonna attach to Eddie Guardo. Uh, he's a Street Fighter Tekken character. I don't know which video game. It's a video game with a capoeirista. So mm -hmm. a lot of people will relate to this through video games. But for me, it was personal. It was it was real. It was no video game. So this is also embodying uh, the Brazilian flag. This Procyon flower is on the Brazilian flag. And so the Japanese lander landing upside down. Let me show that. Uh, I'm going to show that real quick. There you so, go, yeah. So people can see that. The upside down uh, lander is very much uh, landing a striking blow to my ego <laughs> because it also is correspondent to um, the full card the way it's supposed to be, expressing its capoeira potential. And so, uh, and of course, I'm, I'm sure this is, I, I'm not into the moon, whatever. I just know that the moon is a code for our psyche. This yeah, is a code for our psychology. Because get back to it, guys. We were talking about earlier, the Jesuits' main thing is mind control, government, gubernamente. If they're the ones that are running the, the current day aristocratic governmental schools where our politicians are, they're using the venue. It's a venue of government as the way to mold us, to mold our minds because our mind creates the prison that we're in. Like imagine, imagine like one of the most frustrated times, like when I was a very young man, I had a teacher, actually a coach say to me, what's the more effective prison? The prison with no walls or the prison with huge walls? And I got, I got infuriated and I had no idea why I got infuriated, but I was just, I was so mad because internally, like at that time in my life, I wanted, I, uh, I saw myself as like a completely free being, but I internally knew the prison that had no walls was the more effective prison. Yeah, buddy. I think I think there's a quote. I I think it's I think it's Blake, but I'm not sure. And the quote is: "Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage." That's so good. <laughs> that is uh, there there there. That's such a high truth. And so you yeah. see all this stuff. There's a reason why so much energy is put into these lies. 
there's a reason why every classroom has a globe in it, <laughs> why every movie starts with these spinning globes, you know, and, and, and all this space, you know, like when you look at space, they've inverted it in a way that's really kind of funny because to them, well, to, to the people in the know, ether is the real space well ether it can be likened to the dimension of the causal so government they they go back and they program the causal realm for you <laughs> and in that causal realm you play out through your own symposium yes sir yes sir man the causal realm that is really the target here. Uh, there's a there, there's a whole narrative out there. I'm 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 getting affluence in. That is a theory that our language is caught up in effect. And like one example, I think I'm getting better at articulating this. But like we say, the lightning flashes. Well, actually, lightning is a is an effect. Flash is an effect. We're not really getting to where it comes from. Uh, really, we're just kind of speaking in effects. But uh, what's fascinating is theoretically, the cause of the lightning is Zeus, is Wotan. It's, it was a deity. We used to have a, 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 a persona responsible for the causality. And they've removed us from this relationship of nature, these nature spirits, and, and deified them and kind of watered them down. But you used to just say, Zeus flashes and Zeus was the cause. And so what's kind of strange about uh, uh, denaturing us is we've uh, detached from causality mm -hmm. and the causality uh, in, in my theory, this is a rough theory, but causality might have nine deified personas and Zeus number seven is a causality of all things that fall into the seven wing of the Enneagram. Bro, think about it. So what you just said, denatured. Well, when yeah. you denature something, you make it a solvent. Yes. It becomes all mental masturbation. You're solving. <laughs> you're, you're, you're just solving. I, I'm solving it. It's me. I'm doing it. And you're right. You're not dealing with the causal at that point. You're actually yes. sitting there just stroking yourself because you're the one who's solving it. Right. Where is Man. that? And that's why I love these stories like in American Gods. And I love this whole thing with the symposium is that and this is what this is why my study of Celestics just humbles me every day. It's because, OK, there's a deep philosophical question of about time just in general, like, OK, it. it is, can it be retrocausal? Is it only going in one direction and all this stuff? And it's like when you get in when you get to see that there's these deeper energies that just are. Like I think that's the point of Jung's red book, isn't it? Jung Carl Jung's red book. Yep. These energies yep. are. <laughs> they are causal. <laughs> they're causal. I don't care what you say, they're causal. And yeah, they buddy. And the angles and geometries of our life, just like that, that, you know, that total breakdance kick, you weren't aware of the angles, dude, 
whack. That's right. That's and so right. I, I didn't then, know the trajectories. And then 20 years later, whack. You didn't know it was rotating. You didn't know it was spinning. You didn't know that the left foot had a right foot return. Like, you didn't know. <laughs> Goes around, comes around, baby. <laughs> but but it's happening, right? Yeah, man. Yeah, man. And, and what I'm seeing in so many people's lives is that their unique little snowflake like getting back to the six of it all, the, the, the special little snowflake. You're a prism that is dictated by the time and the location in which that prism was born. And depending on when the time and, and the location of where that prism was born within the greater creation, depends on what holographic reality is playing out through you. But no matter what the holographic reality is that's playing out for you, and this is God's hologram, this isn't some bullshit computer simulation. No matter what, God has the hero's journey there for you with these greater archetypes that have to run through. They're gonna run out, they're gonna run through you in different proportions, a different intensity, because we're not equal. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. We're not equal, which isn't a bad thing. It's fucking Thank great. Thank God, yeah. Thank it's God. Great. Praise the Lord. <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 all about diversity, man. I want diversity. And so it's just these things that are the archetypes. <laughs> they're they are in and they're they're being expressed through the archway, the the vault of heaven. And then it plays through us. And it it has this fractality to it, like your thing with this with this tarot card that's flipped upside down, dude. Nobody else will ever have that experience. <laughs> that is like such a strictly unique experience that is so is solely yours. It's yes, solely it yours. And I know you know the depth of that word. So it's just like this is stunning. You talk about the 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 mysterium of life, the crucible of life now taking on this totally new animated level. It's just like ah, this is so rich, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Yes. You know, uh, will you go uh, back to the one with the craters on it? I just want to finish uh, fascinating. All these headlines came out right after we planned for this show. And uh, the headlines were about the upside down lander. Uh, and also that, the you know, now on the moon, they want to, these are the selected craters that they plan to turn into domes. They're going to oh. make these craters into dome uh, agriculture centers. And look at the shadows inside the craters. They correspond with what you had sent me that day on Telegram for your plans for the dome house. The yes. shadows of the of the circles are like the shadows in these craters are even blocked out. And then the last headline in the same uh, the same video was that there's a strange magnetic anomaly in a location on the moon that is called the Rainier Gamma. Rainier Gamma is an anagram for Enneagram. It's a phonetic, perfect anagram for Enneagram, Rainier Gamma, this strange magnetic anomaly. So I just had to uh, bring this forward and uh, just kind of 
put it as a signpost on our way to if, uh, you know, eventually they're going to be taking what we're talking about now, what we're solving now, and it will be activated in mass. And uh, yeah, it, uh, the way of the future, man, the way of the future. And I think uh, I think we're blessed to be uh, getting little confirmations, even if it is coming from not a straight answer. Uh, they are really uh, beautiful uh, truisms, even in the psychology, even if it is all the psychology of the homunculus, uh, it's definitely uh, looking at us, I think, in a fun way. So I just so wanted to... You want to hear how this fractal is hitting me? Yeah. So that picture of the Rainier Gamma is the... Mm -hmm. is that... Um, why why is that word not coming to me? What's that again? The sun's path, the Ouroboros? Uh, analema. analema. The, the analema. Proportionally on a human body, the analema, like that little X, is the heart. That's that, like if you're drawing a human body, the Whoa. analema is the heart. And so that is the magnetic anomaly. Like when you look at magnetic patterns of people, the the heart, like people that have an arrhythmic heart pattern, they usually send electronics awry when they're around them because the magnetic distortion yeah. of their field, you know, because it's electromagnetic fields. And so if you distort a magnetic field, it will distort an electrical field. And yeah. so here you have, they're saying that the magnetic anomaly is there in the Enneagram of it all, in the heart of it all, right? Because they're giving you the symbol of of the uh, analema. Yeah. Well, ch check this out. I just had a, an epiphany yesterday because I watched a perfectly blue sky get converted into a completely opaque sky through through engineering, through geoengineering. Yeah, And I was just watching it. I was emotionally neutral. I wasn't coming from a space of being like mad about it or angry or anything. I was actually neutral. So new, the neutrality actually lets you access the heart. And I was neutral and I was just observing. And I noticed that my breathing is always a little bit more labored whenever there's that level of modification. And mm. it made me think back to um, some of my friends that are real alchemists. They told me that the sun is actually uh, oxygen exalted. Sunlight, yes. it is oxygen. That's, it's, it's the representation of oxygen. And so I was thinking, okay, this makes sense because there is this engineered veil between myself and the sun. And there's no, I bet you there was no change of oxygen in the actual atmosphere. But because there was this veil, like we were talking about earlier, this whole thing with the, the Jesuits and the mind control and the gubernmente of it all, this veil that is 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 becoming the middleman between myself and the and the source or the pinnacle or the exaltation of oxygen. 
actually that's the way the alchemists put it is that the sun is the exalted oxygen so wow. so there it is and there i am my body is like actually mirroring that like i'm in labored breath even though i'm not exerting myself i'm in yeah. labored breath because there's a middleman between me and the the exaltation of oxygen totally and so that's what have since since the corona because when you look at the enneagram dude look at that i've seen yeah. different artists alike in that 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 star pattern uh -huh. to a crown <laughs> there's the crown that's actually kind of creating this magnetic anomaly right there in the heart of it all you know the enneagram the heart of it all the 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 the, the psychological archetypal language that we're consistently being pinged with and guess what? I say this to clients all the time that have a lot of stuff in their 12th house. I'm like, you're getting worked on subconsciously and you have no idea what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, it, it's just happening for you. Uh, sorry about that. But the, that, the, the energetics of, of the, just you, like you, this is your artwork and you made this like a week ago. And you're you're linking, you know, the the breakdance fighting fool card to you know the space odyssey stuff, and there and and you in your mind there's like oh there's this monolith that's in this crater in the Rainier Gamma and like all of it, and that's actually a correlate to what I'm experiencing. So <laughs> so just like you had that like mine's not as profound as yours but like this is how we are all interacting with each other whether we know it or not totally totally and the, it, and the bigger the bigger heads we surround ourselves with the broader uh reality tunnel we can draw upon to inform our our view it's it it is i mean i'm just floored with how awesome it is like I, I i want i want you real quick to show because you're you're bringing up your millennial falcon and the enneagram mm -hmm. and this is what you were talking about right here correct yes yes and you're talking about the double mandible because the mandible for those of you who don't know that's those are the bones that make up your jaw and mm -hmm. when you're in in utero your pubic bone and your lower mandible are the first two bones that form and then your spine grows to connect them <laughs> and so in polarity therapy you want to talk about a whole nother thing like you're talking about this this whole thing with the forklift and the mandible and i'm just thinking like my whole polarity therapist career is about connecting the the second and the fifth chakra it's about actually working the whole lower mandible relative to the pubic bone in the sacral base whoa wow that that maps out on the fourth deck card very pronouncedly the mandible is it's looking uh you actually have an interior view of the jaw bone of that skeletal figure 
Uh-huh. And then the, the other pronouncement is his sacral coccyx bone down at the bottom. That That's beautiful. They actually, they're a direct correlation in, in both Ayurvedic massage and polarity therapy because they are the first two. They're the first two. And so wow. when you, if I'm ever getting to a, a, a point of zero rectification in a, in a session, all mm-hmm. I ever have to do is connect the second and the fifth and the body will start to reckon. Wow. That's cool as heck. Yeah. And it's also, I, it's specifically done for pregnant women or women that have just given birth because their pubic bone separates. Mm-hmm. And when it comes back together, it's usually offline like this. Oh. And so you work the chin and the pubic bone together, and then it comes back with symmetry. That is fascinating. Yeah. That is so fascinating. And those are the two ends of the toroid, you know, it, correspondently. Exactly. Wow, and w- w- without fail, too, if somebody has a lock in their neck, they're going to have a lock in their hips and vice versa. And then, you know, the word threshold, you know, those are the two thresholds. And, you know, by by maintaining the two ends of the of the tube. Mm-hmm. That's health. That's that's crucial health. Dang. I love knowing that. Thank you for that, Jim. That's really cool. It's this is amazing, Gabe. Let's let's not melt everybody's brain any further. Uh, <laughs> I I do have I have a couple. Uh, I want to melt their brain more. Okay, I'm, I'm just started. Let's go, let's go further. Okay. Let's go further. Awesome. Yeah. Um, if uh, I'm going to tell a quick story, uh, a lot of people have followed me in my sickness and YouTube. Uh, I've recently discovered the musical significance of these cards through uh, ancient, ancient Brazilian, uh, Afro-Brazilian traditions. Turns out there's a there's a Hindu capoeira that's called uh, Kalari Payatu. And Kalari Payatu is not exactly capoeira, but they, because of the slave trade, because of the British Indian, East India Trade Company, these their roots are similar. They're very similar. And I studied Kalari Payatu uh, this past month and comparing it to Capoeira is so very close. Um, the difference is Kalari Payatu does not have sacred musical instruments. So it actually falls short of book three of Plato's Symposium and Capoeira wins. So Capoeira still comes out on top. But that is my tie-in to India and Brazil and Japan and this, the slave trade. That Something about knowing that the slaves are the backdrop those slaves are the darkness of the mind. They are the subconscious. I've seen them expressed that way in art in powerful ways. And here I am with the interesting uh, slave's eye view of colonialism uh, through these arts and crafts of the of the underappreciated subclass. So that's kind of another uh, channel of thought that, I, that I'm working with. So I went through the, uh, the entire... Uh, project, and I found musical instruments on almost every card. And I have some addendums and uh, some caveats along the way. But what, uh, long story short, because we're coming to the end, I've discovered that the Emperor card and the Empress card are two specific implements. This is called the Heko Heko 
It is the scratchy stick in the in the musical accompaniment. And I can tell because of the angle of the scepter that he's holding at that 45 degree angle, that is the angle that you would use to to work the stick. In mm -hmm. his corresponding card, his empress, the female counterpart, she's holding that lotus, but she's holding it at a different angle. And that is the angle ergonomically for the cowbell. The cowbell is called the agogo. Mm -hmm. So she has the agogo. He has the heckle heckle. Mm -hmm. And this is really significant um, because this is also a, a um, locus or no. A cicada. This is a cicada. If you look, you can see there's wings. See the, the yeah. bug wings? There's mm -hmm. bug wings. And then the eyes of the cicada are just exactly this width. Yes, Even they are. The, the facial mark of the cicada fits the uh, the print of this, this uh, one-footed character, this emperor. And what I've learned is that the cicadas are syncopated to prime numbers and of course everybody's thinking about cicada 3301 and the cia recruiting operation that went around to get all the greatest co-breaking minds recruited on their team well turns out not only is this the uh the emperor is an anagram for hero tramp it's card number four this is orange man bad tramp is a little horn Trump, the word Trump means little horn. Cicadas are little bugs that are going to be bugging us all through the next year. We have a strong prime number cicada season coming in syncopation with the uh, the eclipse and in syncopation with the election year. Election years happen every four, four years, and they are syncopated to leap years. So elections correspond to the votive offering of giving up your time, where we jump backwards for the leap years. And it is all culminating around the elections coming up. So all the, the, uh, the reading of these auguries are heavily pointing at uh, this, this outbreak, a strong outbreak on the horizon. And I'm not, I mean, people know it's crazy, but I'm telling you that the cards are singing a song of profound proportion. And now this scratchy stick, the heckle heckle I'm talking about, that is the sound of a cicada. Mm -hmm. The cicada makes the scratchy stick noise. And so the symposium of the Capoeira musical uh, system is adhering to natural cycles in a very profound way. So I just wanted to put that in, into context, more on the Sick Dissident channel on that. But what the reason it applies to our project, Topher, is because... Uh, Thomas's uh, system numerologically is invoking the prime numbers also. Yes. And that's where I was lit up on fire. I had to watch you guys' show two times because I've, uh, I'm just fascinated at what he has discovered as a, a fundamental base truism of just uh, immense proportion because essentially the numbers he's chosen uh, – five and 37 or excuse me five and 73 mm -hmm. uh those numbers are the first masculine prime numbers the first prime number is two and it's the only female prime it's the only even prime number 
And so she's like Smurfette. She's the only female prime number. The rest of the prime numbers are masculine, much like the symposium. In the symposium, they sent the women out of the room so the men could get down to business. And mm -hmm. so it is harmonically syncopating to the primes here. And so his number choice, um, and I'm gonna, uh, the, so the first masculine prime is three, then comes five, then comes seven. His equation that he used is seven, three, with the five dividing them. If you put the five in the middle of the seven in the three, you're going back to the fundamental first three numbers of the prime system. Three, five, seven. Five is dividing the seven in the three. It is. So just so, so there's let me let me just explain this to everybody so they understand what we're talking about. In a day yes. we in in a year we have 365 days currently. And he saw that 365 was only divisible by five and seventy-three. And so if if yes. you divide 365 by 73, that's where you get five seasons. And the yeah. the nine day weeks are essentially if you have two, if you have one month or four weeks of nine days, that's 36 days. You have two of those per season that gives you 72 days, which gives you a natural divider right down the middle which the Mayans would call the day out of time. There are certain Roman calendars that had a day out of time. Yeah. But you had this day in the middle of each season that essentially bisects the two 36-day months. And yeah. so this is, this is what Gabriel is talking about with the math of having 5 and 73 and then actually using 5 as the divisor between the 3 and the 7. That's exactly it. Uh, can you uh, can you make me big? I made a I, I made some notes. I'll share with you so for visual effect. So right here are the first, actually uh, the first five prime numbers, female. The rest are male. So he's actually harnessing three, two, and four. Well, three, two, four is a sacred number. So allegedly the actual axial tilt of the earth, but that's not all. Three, two, and four, those are the feeling numbers in the Enneagram. This is the heart center. Two, three, four is the sequence of feel, feel, feel. Incredible. And so the fact that the fact that he's using 73 and he's dividing it by this five is so fundamentally sacred, it's blowing my mind. And so I think what's happening here is a certain cavitation like we were thinking out on the on the end results but i'm looking at the fine minutiae of the symbols we're using on a deeper level and i'm cavitating the whole thing and i'm getting your name Topher. T yeah <laughs> awesome yeah and then the next the next prime in the sequence is the 11th prime which is the symbol for salt and that is the uh, fifth prime number is 11 which is the uh, periodic symbol for salt. So I just wanted to hand that to you as well, that when you're talking about five, uh, through the primes, you're talking about the number 11, which is the uh, periodic symbol for salt. And then right now, we have the 47th president on the horizon. Well, that's the 16th prime. 16 is a tower card. 
Amazon Prime is probably on this this formula a long time ago. Yeah. Just thought I would mention mention that. And then um oh here, over here, I want to show this. So here is some of my math notes. It's all wonderfully scattered. And you can see some of my twilight language going on. You know, you mentioned in your interview that you work with bamboo and bamboo is grass. Yes. Uh, well, capoeira means the place where the grass grows back. That's the translation of capoeira. Uh-huh. And so we're talking about sustainability. Well, bamboo is the uh, epitome of sustainability. And Capoeira, through Plato's Republic, is also uh, making sure that uh, the grass will grow back, that there's still, uh, that when we take, we only take uh, on the perfect timing, on the full moon we harvest, and we expect uh, optimal returns for those efforts and that wisdom. And then you mentioned uh, coincidence, coincidence in your interview, and I was like, there's a clue inside us. <laughs> when, we, when we see a coincidence there's a clue inside of us and then um here's his equation right 73 times 5 gives you the 365 i just want to point out 73 is the 21st prime number number five is the third prime number this is a world card this is a uh empress card mm -hmm. so that's that's pretty profound that the uh the numbers you chose are uh very significant numbers. This is a tarot. This is a full tarot, uh, major arcana, also the universe or the world card. Um, but then what's fascinating, right? This 73 times five gives you 365. Well, in the prime numbers, the 73rd prime number is almost 365, Topher. Wow. The 73rd prime is so close. But what happens if you take two days out of time? If you sacrifice two days at a time, Topher, you're at 365. It becomes 365. Ain't that something? Ain't that something? So the numbers you guys are playing with are just ringing my bell. And then also, I want to cavitate the numbers a different way. We did 73 times five to get 365. Cavitate, go the other direction. 73 divided by five is 36.5. That's it. Even going the other direction. And then Another thing about primes that I love, I learned that first, second, third, fourth, these are the standards, standards. Wow. That is and amazing. Then, and then every other number after the third one, they're all TH, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, 25th, they all end on TH, that's a 28, that's a lunar code, that's timing, that's T Thoth, that's mm -hmm. Thoth right there, that 28th. And so uh, just kind of cleaning up some of the notes from the project that I wanted to share real quick here. This is the Kabbalistic cube, and this is the current uh, calendar. This is the calendar system that we use now, and I'm just going to ring it real hard and fast. The way that you count the calendar now to know the long months and the short months is by using your knuckle bones. You got the 28, the 30, the 29, the 31, the 28, the 30, you know? Mm -hmm. And so you're counting knuckle bones. There's the long count, short count, long count, short count, long count, short count. When you count out the months, long, short, long, short, you're actually drawing this cube. And knuckle bones are on your yod. Y-O-D is your hand. 
Now, the thing about this is that knuckle bones is an encode for necromancy. And what's fascinating about the cube and this code, and it's uh, it's adhering to a dead a dead system, a dead language, is um, that we know that Rome is all about Anubis, about death, about necropolis, about dead things. So using a calendar system that requires your knuckle bones in order to get the Kabbalistic cube to come out of it, knuckle bones means necromancy. And so mm. Latin is rotten, but it is also uh, good to have command over that system because it's embedded into our language in really fascinating ways. And then the last thing, uh, and this is just for your screenshot use, this is my theoretical adhering of the five walls theoretically to the, the way my Enneagram works out. Uh, and I'm I'm putting the balance day, the number nine, the hermit, I'm putting it at the top. This is rough draft. We can tweak this later, but that's kind of a rough draft of uh, that is not exactly what you guys were working on with Thomas. Like, here's your guys's, this is your map. Does that look about right? I have his, uh, he's got yes. his. Uh, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to point out some cool patterns that you guys brought forward, and that is that 9-2 sums up, um, when you multiply, it becomes the 18, and that becomes a 9. Well, the same kind of cool thing happens with the 4-9, multiply becomes a 36, and that's a 9. Mm -hmm. And so there's there's cool mathematical uh, truth to having your uh, your equinoxes on that division point, that they're the dates also syncopate to the Enea of the nine. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to kind of share some of those, uh, just some of the vision that you guys were putting in my head. I wanted to uh, bounce it back to you and get it on the record so you can kind of see how my brain cavitates information into fascinating patterns. Well, I absolutely love the whole idea of um, cavitation, you using that word. And the reason why is cavitation is how nature works. Um, we, in the current standard epic that we're in, we use a lot of pushing. <laughs> we use a lot of force. We are always told about a big bang and all these things where we, we heat gases so they expand. Everything is about a push. And as the natural philosophers were trying to, to hint to us was that nature works much more effectively and uses cavitation much more so than she uses explosion. And this likens back to the whole notion of like upon conception, there's a collapse and the whole universe collapses at that point and then boom, new life occurs because nature abhors a vacuum. So when you have the positive polarity and the negative polarity come together in perfect harmony and neutralize and that collapse occurs, boom, life begins. And that life has so much more energy than the input energy that it took to make it. Okay. Yeah, and so when you're talking about cavitating the numbers and getting back to 36.5, and that just being a relation to the whole of the year, 
that makes complete sense to me. That's that's that is so perfect. That is the magic of the five. That's totally the magic of the five right there. Mm -hmm. I love that. And uh, one thing, one thing that we can build out going forward is I just noticed that uh, the map that you guys have is only a slight tweak from aligning to the Enneagram just slightly uh, the, because the cards are seasonal. They're, they're, uh, they're stellar. Mm -hmm. but, but in my project, it's a kind of a scramble how I arrange them to what they are because it goes, it wraps twice because I put two layers around the circle and mm -hmm. the two layers are actually two calendars with a twink and then fused into each other is how mm -hmm. I got the cards to where they are, but I've simplified it in looking at your project and my project. This little one that I showed you is, is my offer on just, uh, what would that be? Uh, uh, what is it? 72, uh, 72 degree twist. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. a 72 degree twist uh, to the way you guys have it mapped out. But somewhere in between, we can, you know, we can suss out how this is what I've been doing, and this is what you're proposing. And I think there's a lot of beautiful uh, dynamic disequilibrium that can be sussed out between what you guys have out and what I've uh, discovered in the Enneagram system. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that's kind and, of that's my that's my full pitch right there. Oh and, no no I'm I'm not done. I have one more thing to cavitate <laughs> your mind. I have one more thing. You already knew this. You were building the your 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 homes are uh, uh, sand dollars. Yes. If you turn the S on sand dollar into a soft C, you switch the interior and it becomes a calendar. calendar. <laughs> it was a calendar all along. It, you talk about the fractal of life. My my wife's favorite place on this earth is Bimini in the Bahamas. And I, one of my favorite memories is watching her and her mother collect sand dollars mm. in the shallows of Bimini. Like literally they were out there for hours collecting these sand dollars. And it's one of her favorite things in the world to do. So for you to just bring that up randomly, <laughs> like there's randomness. <laughs> <laughs> as is, as is. <laughs> that's awesome Gabe um I I need a break right now because this is yeah. a lot this is a lot to process and I I so appreciate your mind and your heart and um I'm gonna dive into everything that you said and like further my studies because uh you you give such a wonderful opening to live the the holographic life and uh out of out of the minds that are out there like yours is the best at it so i really appreciate it <laughs> thank you my friend this has been such a blessing this has been such an honor i love yeah. you topher i love you too my man and just so you know how this is going to be released i'm releasing this after my uh interview with eileen mccusick whoa yeah so i had thomas and then I had uh, Professor Longo, then I had Eileen McCusick, and then you're going to wrap it up. <laughs> wow. And because and, that's, that's a total thought, because she didn't like the term negentropy. 
So I was describing to her dynamic disequilibrium in negentropy because negentropy is negative entropy. And she is like, I've never liked that word and I forget who informed her, but instead of saying negative entropy as a correlate to, to uh, dynamic disequilibrium, she used the word syntropy. Whoa. Yeah, syntropy is, is negative entropy. And so at the highest level, you and I are talking about how light is ordered from the causal plane. That, that, that's, that's exactly what we're talking about from the calendar to Plato's symposium to the fractal nature of the full card to the sand dollars in my life. Like we're talking about this, this order, this beautiful golden phi ratio of ordering that connects us all. And when you start to talk the language of the birds and think of the language of the birds and like the, the story becomes both infinitely complex and infinitely simple at the same time. The paradox of that starts to ring forth, meaning that you can see infinitely more detail, yet it's making life infinitely more uh, coherent. You would think if you got more data points <laughs> that it would actually make things more complicated. And it doesn't, <laughs> at least not for me. It's, it's so like, true. it's like the, the, the added level of detail is just building this super crystalline view of, of this cosmology. And that's the point of this whole podcast. This is a cosmology podcast. And I think this right now is the denouement of anything that we've gotten into. So I, I believe it, my friend. I want to. I want to appreciate Eileen's uh, gift. You just passed a torch to me with this word, centropy. It, it's now. It's going in my pocket. It's going to serve me. This is a torch. Yes. This is a. This is a torch coming to me, and I'll. I want to uh, put as a reciprocate. I want to centri centripically <laughs> reciprocate that gift. Um, something I discovered in Plato's Symposium in the uh, the the Meno dialogues, there is a word when somebody is perplexed. The word means to be torpedo fished, which is a stingray. The torpedo fish is a stingray, and it stings uh, it stings you in place. And um, and the uh, the person Socrates is talking to, he says, "You've you've torpedo fished me." And Socrates says, "Well, when I torpedo fish you, turns out I torpedo fish myself." When you distray, you dish yourself. And so this centropy in the torpedo fish, in the sink, uh, the given the response, the given the take of playfulness of, of, of communing with the elders, you know, is uh, alive and well. I think her word centropy in my realization around the torpedo fish and what perplexes us and how do we get out of this uh, being perplexed is a is a is a beautiful thing to meditate on and then something beautiful also is the name of the first kick that i learned on day one in capoeira is called the tail of the stingray no way that is the name of kick number one on day number one for the beginner and it involves being perplexed and perplexing others in finding a centropy to work your way out of the situation 
So I just wanted to bring the poetry of the dance all the way from Socrates, all the way to Eileen, and here we are now. So I think that's a good rant to drop the mic on. Let's drop it. Oh, this is awesome. <laughs> Gabe, where can people find you? Uh, Slick Visited on YouTube is my jam right now. I also do a lot of work over on the Interverse with our buddy Chance. Awesome. Uh, and uh, those are my main haunts. You'll also see me uh, over on Bush Whisperer. He's got a channel, the Roundtable Symposiums on Saturdays. I get over there every once in a while. And then you'll find me on the one-on-one -on -one and uh, Rising from the Ashes. We got to rise them from the ashes, get them out of retirement. But yeah, those are some of the places you'll find me. Perfect. So good, Gabe. And uh, it, you know me, I'm going to be bugging you on Telegram. So. <laughs> All right. And everybody, go get on Juan's case. Start buying more Occultist Monday. These are cheap. And if more people buy these, then he'll get off his ass and start making more. That's uh, awesome. and some of my Some of my work is in there as well. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much, Gabe. You ought to know. Well, now you. You ought to know by now. My mind, my mind is pure gravy. <laughs> That's Savanye. I, I channeled my inner Savanye from BB right there with the three hour uh, crush fest that just happened with Gabriel, Mr. Slick Dissident on YouTube. Um, this exploration that we just did through the Enneagram and linking that to the new calendar and then that relative to the timing of things. The way to think about it is if you've ever danced or have ever had a dance partner and when the music is going and it sounds great and you and your partner are in rhythm, just there you can just go you can just go and go and go and go and all of a sudden let, let's say in the same instance the music stops or something scratches or your partner doesn't have a rhythm is like it's it's jarring it hurts <laughs> a lot of our calendrics is that second example uh the gregorian system as it is i I don't know if it was intentional. Let's just say, you know, we brought up the whole notion of the Jesuits and their conditioning process. A lot of the history that we've been given was Jesuit born. And if you hearken back to what Professor Longo and I were talking about, the, let's just say, the the people that have been scribing everything for us are the same people that wrote the calendar are the same people that gave us a model of existence that we're finding out on every level is false do you think the calendrical system that they gave you will optimize you do you think it would actually put you in a rhythm that would allow you to harness your utmost. 
there's a pattern here. <laughs> the majority of the systems that are put out there are not for you to optimize. The majority of those systems are there to kind of demean you. And I'm not saying you're a victim in it, but it's just, there is a pattern out there. It, it's an obstacle course. And if you believe all the rules in the obstacle course, or if you follow all the mandates of the obstacle course, you will lose. You know, I love the line in war games. I think there's like 1986 classic war games. It's like, there's only one way to win that game and it's to not play it. So there are outliers out there, like I brought up before of Jose Arguelles, a few others, I can't remember their name right now, where they set their timing to a different calendar. Um, I had the opportunity to live a life for a few years where I didn't really have a calendar. I was just set to the natural rhythms. And when I had to get my passport, <laughs> you know, stamped, and that was it. Like when I worked was up to me, when I ate was up to me, I wasn't living by convention and my body and everything in my life really uh, exemplified uh, that of a living man. So I'm going to do an experiment. I can't say for certain that this calendar that is is presenting um, or the way I should say it is correlating our 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 seasons to sun cycles. I can't say whether or not it really is a better system, but the only way you can really know is to experiment. Looking at the numbers of it and looking at the logic of it. I think it's a worthwhile endeavor, so I'm going to go for it. I really have been appreciating your guys' support. Um, I'm having better and better interviews. <laughs> now that I'm like 70, 70 interviews in, at least with me, like doing podcast interviews, I feel like uh, that there's a, I'm getting a little bit better at it. <laughs> I'm uh, learning the technology a little bit better. We are making the office space that I'm in. We're renovating it. It's much, much better. There's a lot of things are occurring where improvements are happening. Uh, when we get our new logo, which is being made uh, by Bite Size Bear, um, I'm going to be launching a Twitter account. I'm going to. I'm essentially going to go back into some more of the legacy uh, spaces like YouTube, Twitter. Um, What's the other one that everybody does? TikTok. And uh, really crush on those because uh, I think this type of information is really, I think it's very pertinent to today. And it's uh, snappy and quick enough that it will really get the modern day alchemist to really live the crucible of life. So I really appreciate what you're doing, what your guys support. If you feel like supporting extra, you can donate at toferhq.com. Come on to the Telegram chat. We have so many excellent contributors there. The Telegram chat, we have like 750 people that I think at any given time, we have like 100 people on there just like chatting away. A lot of chatty Cathy's over there, but it's good stuff, very positive. Um, and we're always sharing notes and asking each other questions. I, I just absolutely love the chat. And uh, share this podcast with other people too. It's um, the numbers are, are 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 growing steady. I don't pay for advertisement or do anything like that. 
as of yet, I think when I jump on YouTube and TikTok, things will really grow very fast when I do that. And I feel like now overall, um, I know I don't harbor anger like I used to. When I first started my podcast 10 years ago, or like, what was it, nine years ago, I, there was still a little bit of a victim inside and it would come out every once in a while. I don't have that now. And uh, I think I can express in a way that's somewhat sanitized to the, to the, to the regular normal world of YouTube. Um, and at the same time, very profound and sanitized from my own internal projection is the best way of saying it. So once again, you guys, have been awesome. And I'm going to start doing some reviews when I do go onto YouTube, probably when I do YouTube and do YouTube live, I will actually review my own podcasts because I get so many questions about them and I break up so many things where if we do a review of a podcast, then I can really get, I can answer your guys' questions and we can like really nail down specific things because like I said in the beginning this whole project of mine is to create a, a cosmological education series for the young ones and uh, something that's very complete and accurate to what their surroundings are showing them and so we're getting to that space now where we have a really good cosmology uh that's consistent with what we see so it's a it's a wonderful journey and i appreciate you guys joining and uh, i look forward to uh interacting with you on the chat at some point oh also i'm doing lots of celestic profiles now for people the celestic profile is where i look at your at your conception birthday and your birth date so if you've ever done human design, they compare like when your soul enters the body relative to your birthday. I take it that a little bit further and I measure it against the real sky. I don't measure it against numbers <laughs> on a computer. So um, yeah, it's 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 been pretty profound. I'm getting excellent feedback with that and uh, people seem to really appreciate what doors that's unlocking for them on a on a on a personal level or I should say private level so thank you again and I will see you all next week